In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1632 to 1645, and as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1632. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales, Tales from, from Outer, Outer Space. Space. I hope you enjoy. Story number one. Hate and Hope, written by Ozzy Endeavor. What happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? Not opposing, but side by side. Every species that is a part of the Galantic community knows and can feel disdain and dislike. The mix of feelings of anger and disgust. We are also able to feel joy and relief. To be patient, yet no one can feel these so intensely as humans. And that was first shown in the war. The Sorg went to war with humanity not too long after the latter joined us on the galactic stage, seeking the valuable gas and ice giants that lay in the human's home system. My species, the Otai, and many others wanted to help the humans, but we could not get to them, and they were on the other side of Sorg's space, so all we could do was start a second front. It wasn't enough. The few star systems humanity had beyond their home system were taken one by one. The first to fall was Sirius. After that, the human counterattacks grew stronger and more frequent. The Sorg blocked communications between humanity and the rest of us. But we knew that the assault from Sirius did something to the humans. Though, what, we were unsure. The counterattacks were still not enough. Eventually, the Sorg reached the outer bounds of the human system, and the human's resistance was growing weaker once more. We were desperate to save humanity, so we made one final push and broke through. We pushed into Sorg space. Our advance was stopped soon after, but we managed to make contact with the humans again. The humans seemed downbeaten, almost like they were considering surrender. But hearing from us again... Whatever it did, it triggered something within the humans, a blazing fire that would not fade. The humans fought back and pushed the Sorgs back towards Alpha Centauri. They were ecstatic, and they took back the system, ready to liberate those who remained. There was nothing left. It was all gone. The planet which they had colonized was white, barren. Nothing could have survived. There seemed to be silence for some time after that. The Sorg started to take back territory once again, and we were wondering what the humans were doing. They broadcast originated from Earth, rang throughout the entire galaxy. When humanity spoke, everyone listened. Many years ago, we thought that we might have been alone in this universe. We were alone drifting through the void of space, doomed to end ourselves before we could meet anyone else. Do you know how we managed to push through, to keep going until we had found you? A little thing called hope. That's what. Do you know what hope is? It is the ability to look into the future, terrifying, unknown, dark, and horrible, and say, all will be okay. We will not fall. We will prevail. You may see that as foolish, but that is how we have survived this god-forsaken 
death world. It is how we will survive this. Now to you, the Sorg. Do you know what you have done? You have massacred men, women, children. Everyone. No mercy, no prisoners, no survivors. So don't expect mercy from us. This is what we call hate. You have given us the capacity to cause pain, to sow suffering. We hope you enjoy your lost moments. The effects were sudden and intense. The Sorg launched everything they had at humanity and were repelled. Humanity refused to retreat any further, knowing that all would be well in the end. Then it was their turn. They charged full force, eradicating any ship that was in their way, leaving no survivors. They ripped through Sorg space, and the rest is history. The Sorg could not go on. The humans were wiping out everything they had, and we began another advance towards Sorg home system. After the war was won, the message took to a new meaning for the rest of us. Hope. There's a feeling humans can get which refuses to let them give up. Convincing themselves that they will not break. They become an immovable object. Hate is a feeling that forces humans to forego even their own morals in order to hurt, to punish. The world to put everything on the line just to see you in agony. They become an unstoppable force. The soul triggered both at once, and it was their final mistake. I am glad we chose the side that we did. End of story. Story number two. Humans are like wine. They take decades to mature. Written by Random3x. Besdi arrived in the main square where the human members of the crew had agreed to meet for their day of fun. Besdi was unsure of what the humans had planned for their outing. They were in a layover in the Ecumenopolis, and the entire crew and the lucid treasure had been told that it would be an extended stay. With little else to do, Pesty had initially offered to just wait on the ship, but the human crew members were an odd and persistent bunch, and eventually, after much cajoling, he had agreed to join them. Pesty, there you are. Thought that you might have decided to stand us up, the human named Nigel said, waving at Pesdi as he walked over. Pesdi froze at the words. It had never occurred to him that that was actually an option, but he had been tasked by his people to further his understanding of other races, so even if he had wanted to, he would not have. Greetings, human Nigel. I am most excited for this day's events, Pesdi lied. Coolio, um... The others are already at the first place, Nigel said as he turned around to lead the way towards the buildings covered in flashing hollow displays showing various avatars fighting. Welcome to the Negazone, the android receptionist said as they walked through the entrance. Do you have a booking? Party already in swing, Nigel answered. The android paused for a moment as if computing what had been said and gestured for them to walk in further. Pesdi was unaware of what to expect. He had studied many sources of human interactions. He assumed that this would be a cocktail party where humans discussed events while listening to soft music. Walking through the second set of doors, 
Bezdi was instantly bombarded with a medley of noises from every direction, beeps, pings, and whizzes from every direction. The guys are in the holotag arena, but we can drop in or join or just watch if you like, Nigel said. Um, Bezdi was once again frozen. This was not the get-together that he had researched adult humans did. I think observation is best for now, he finally answered rather weakly. Sitting in the seating area, they could see an arena where holographic avatars were jumping around, locked in combat with a Zilkar beast, doing maneuvers no unenhanced being would be capable of. Lots of gunshots were fired out and some slashes with swords, but in the end, the beast won by the slimmest of margins. The observing crowd even made an audible ah of disappointment. No, they were close, Nigel said. Pardon? Pesdy asked, confused. That was the guys. Back when we were kids, we could beat that thing easily, Nigel replied, as if, on cue, the group of three humans arrived. That was a lot of fun. I want to go again, Lanix beamed. Don't be an idiot. We got the system's biggest arcade and play system, and you want to do the same game again? Alice asked, jabbing Alex with her elbow. Uh, I kind of want to do the zero-g ball pit, the mousy voice of Liz said meekly, holding up her hand. That could be fun, Nigel nodded. Leading the way to the new floor, they came to a large open arena with a large number of tubes surrounding a mass of plastic balls. Every so often, a figure of being could be seen launched out of a tube into the ball mass. They caught them. Dibs on the grab accelerator slide, Manic shouted as he ran ahead. They're all grab accelerator strides, you bonehead, Alice shouted as she ran after him, following shortly by Liz. Human and Nigel, Pesty began before pausing. Hmm? Nigel turned to face Pesty, recognizing that he clearly had something on his mind. In my research, I understand these activities to be more for the hatchlings of the human race. Why do you full-grown specimens wish to partake? Pesty asked, unable to contain his curiosity at the dichotomy between what he had read and what he was witnessing. Not wrong there. This is a big play zone built with kids in mind, but, um, we humans are, uh, well, uh, how do I put it, um, uh, we're all big kids at heart, Nigel explained. Hey, do not follow. Pesdy tilted his head in confusion. Well, uh, humans, uh, at least the ones I know, are more often than not up for messing around with kid stuff. I'll let you in on a little secret, Nigel said, leaning in conspiratorially. Pesty was eager for this information and lent in for Nigel to tell it. We humans only pretend to be big, mature grown-ups. Beneath the surface, we have the same impulses as we had as kids. We can just control them better. The reality is that we never really grow up. We just grow bigger, Nigel went away, indicating that he had finished. You know what? Pesty finally said after a minute of silence. What? Nigel asked. It is like a puzzle piece has fallen into place. And I can now see all of the parts that were unconnected now whole, Pesty said, finally realizing a lot of the oddities of humanity were due to big kids playing as adults. Heh, glad to be of help. Just remember what my old man always said. Humans are like a very fine wine. We take decades to mature. Nigel replied with a big ear-to-ear -ear grin before setting off in the direction the rest had gone. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barkey, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Lord Azrakul, and Arcadian. Tales from Outer Space 1633.
Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Outer Space. Hope you enjoy. Payback, written by DeRay Leaf. In orbit of the colony world Zeta-35. It is cold, and the batteries won't last long. I must go to stand, boating, drifting, and tumbling through space. The ship that killed me, that killed my pilot, is moving off in the distance. It's angling to get a firing solution on the colony far below. My pilot's wife and daughter are down there somewhere, probably watching the sky as their husband and father fights in orbit against the Imperial Raider. Today is not supposed to be this way. It was to be demonstration, a festival, an air show, a day of celebration. Families of the garrison air wing had visited the base. People had marveled at the craft that stood ready to defend the small research outpost that the colony was built around. My pilot, James, had put his daughter in his seat, and she had marveled at all the complex controls. He even let her wear his helmet for a little bit, and it was plainly adorable to experience the joy and wonder of this innocent child. The child had asked her father about this nickname for me, and it was hilarious to see him try and explain it. The kid marveled at the art that adorned my body, running her fingers across the markings as she looked up at me. She would be looking up now, too, but not in wonder. I can picture her fear and worry as the adults around her try to keep calm, but they know the sky will catch fire at any point, Another colony plotted out in this war that has been going on for far too long. No, I can't let that happen. I will not let that happen. They surprised me. A single mid-sized vessel arriving in system on its own. A lost scout or a quick raider. That's what Intel thought. They were wrong. The single Imperial Raider had brazenly charged at the flock of smaller interceptors that had raced into orbit to beat it. They single shot, and it was all over. The alien vessel had fired a single shot from its final mounted plasma cannon, but it hadn't been the standard plasma bolt the Imperials always use. It had been uh, something different, something new. It had detonated in the midst of the scattering fighters and attack bombers and radiated a wave of... Uh, something. My senses had not been able to make sense of the energies, and then my mind was awash with pain. Games had screamed as the neuro-helmet that linked our minds had overloaded, and then he went deadly silent. All around us, the rest of the fighters and bombers started to tumble as their crews suffered the same fate. Even the small garrison frigate that had finally rounded the curvature of the planet could not resist this new weapon. A second shot impacted the bow shields of the small vessel, and from the way it immediately lost all helm control, I could infer that its crew was also dead or incapacitated. All I could do was watch at that point. My mind races as I try to come up with any solution, anything at all. Communications are down, engines are spooled down, and weapons are still active, but that won't do me any good while tumbling aimlessly. Wait, 
Maybe. Life support should work, not like I'm going to need it. I start redirecting energy and currents in ways that would have made James scold me for ruining the hardware. He tended to do that a lot. He wasn't an easy man to have as a pilot. He demanded the best at all times. From me, from the ground crew, from himself. I liked the quiet moments on long patrols. To pass the time, he'd talk to me, telling me tales of his family, his past, whatever came to mind. At times, he talked about his fears, his worries, and sometimes he opened up about why he fought, why he signed on the research division. I'll miss him. And if these void-forsaken chips would work with me, I would have a chance to avenge him. And maybe, just maybe, I can make sure James's legacy, his child, I'll see another day. I will! A growling thrum of energy vibrates through the hull and gets noticed by a sensor sweep from the radar. Good. Let them come. On board the radar, glorious purpose. Shipmaster, one of the human snubfighters has powered back up. The sensor tech called out while starting to check his readings a third time. What? Impossible. The weapon should have worked. There can be no survivors. Maybe an automated system, a beacon perhaps. The shipmaster growled out in irritation and turned to his helmsman. Come about, get the main sensor array on that fighter. The colony will burn a few minutes later. But it will burn. The raider ponderously turned in place. The heavy modifications needed to put the newest weapon onto the spinal mount, making its mass almost too much for the maneuvering thrusters to handle. Shipmaster Barat almost pictured the beam of the ship groaning under the stress. The glorious purpose was a good ship, dependable, almost venerable in its design. It was not capable of facing humans in a line battle any longer, though. Those damnable hairless ones had upended all that was known about space combat. Insane, a lot of them. The fighter, whose image now dominated the main view screen, was a shining example of that. Only humans would design something so damn ugly, yet so frighteningly effective. They had taken a rotary autocan, usually fitted to Dreadnought-class starships as point defense, and built a fighter craft around it. It was almost literally a gun with wings and a small crew compartment. If it fired that stupidly oversized main weapon, the torque of the rotating barrels would rip most ships apart. But the humans, in their insanity, had simply made the damn craft asymmetrical, and fitted a thruster to one wing that would counteract the rotational torque. The humans called the ugly craft hogs after some farmyard animal from their homeworld. Another example of the collective insanity that those barely sentient freaks of nature seemed to revel in. But something was off about this hog. Shipmaster, the, the craft is starting to power up its engines. Correction, it is under power and underway. It is on an intercept course. The sensor tech really should not let fear into his voice. The shipmaster made a mental note to write up the tech for disciplinary action after they returned to the Imperial space. In defense, get that nuisance out of my sight. Barak growled out as he waved his claw dismissively. 
one small craft could not pose any threat to his ship. It's evading. What is this? One of the gunnery stations exclaimed as Shipmaster Barat snapped his gaze back towards the main viewscreen. The way the little human fighter was moving should not be possible. His eyes narrowed as he saw small differences along the ugly craft's hull. Thrusters where there should be none. And with a satisfying snap of his jaws, he figured it out. It must be some type of prototype. If it is, it's a damn good one. It's almost upon us. Must be trying to ram us like they always do. The second in command added. His observations from the side of the shipmaster nodded in agreement. On the screen, the little human fighter juked and weaved around the streams of plasma fire, its evasive maneuvers keeping it away from the radar. But then, at the apex of one of its turns, it gave up trying to evade. The shipmaster's eyes widened as the front of the human craft began a wash with energy, and immediately he was glad to be in the void. He had had the misfortune once of facing hogs in the atmosphere at a human raid on a planetary shipyard. The almighty vibrating roar of the gun still haunted his dreams to this day. Not even the visual of the entire column of armored vehicles disappearing into a trail of explosions had come close to the sheer visceral dread that the gun's roar had conjured forth. The similar trail of explosions stitched across the shielded hull of his ship now. Several point defense emplacements got temporarily blinded by the wash of energies across the shields, and the hog took advantage of that, diving in and getting closer to the raider's hull. Its intent was now clear for all to see. It would ram them. But then it got clipped by a lucky shot from a secondary gun tunnelet. Shipmaster Barat joined his crew in the cheers the human fighter once again turned into a silently tumbling wreckage that drifted towards the radar. Make me ready to take that rack aboard. Full containment protocols. I want to hand that thing over to the Imperial Scholars and find out how it resisted the weapon, he commanded, and then growled out some orders to bring the ship about and back on task to burn the colony, as was his mission. In the background, he vaguely heard the murmuring of his second-in-command as the officer relayed with the shipboard marine infantry squad that should secure the human craft. His eyes scanned across the ship's status console, and he saw the lights on the main cargo bay blink to show the recycling atmosphere. The cargo crews had outdone themselves. That was quick indeed. With a faint crackle, the intercom growled to life. Rack secured. It's mangled up good. The shot clipped the main reactor clean off, which is a good thing because these furless ones love to blow them up. The shipmaster sighed as he accepted the oblique criticism of the cargo master brought up. Then he tapped the intercom to respond only for another voice to cut in. Shipmaster, the fighter has some markings on the hull, some artwork. I believe we may have killed one of their aces, my liege. The voice of the marine commander sounded impressed, and the shipmaster sat up straighter at the implications. Maybe there would even be a bounty on this human. What do the markings say? He asked the voice on the other side of the intercom. My armor autotranslator is having trouble with it. Something about repayment being on the ornery female. I can't make sense of it, my liege. The marine responded and then went on to narrate the proceedings. The crewmen are opening up the cockpit now, my liege. A single pilot, odd helmet, not standard issue. This really must be some kind of a... 
Hold on. What was that? Shipmaster Barat felt a small ripple of worry travel through his fur as the voice of the marine shifted in tone. What's going on? Report. There is an interface? A signal? The marine's voice sounded out between the squeals of feedback from the intercom, and Barat looked around the bridge towards his sensor tech, who looked just as puzzled. The marine's voice returned amidst the cackle of interference. Sir, something is wrong. There was something in the fighter. It's, uh, it's in my suit. It's in my suit. No, no, don't. Please, no. The connection dropped out and then blared back to life with the panicked voice of the cargo master. In the background, wild gunfire sounded out and the shipmaster Barat heard the telltale sounds of flesh being parted by weapon impacts. The marines opened fire on my men. Mutiny! Mutiny! No! Don't touch that! No! With dread pooling in the pit of his stomach, shipmaster Barat heard the voice of Cargo Master, and in fact, all sounds from the intercom cut out in an instant. His eyes fell on the console that showed the cargo bay being opened to space now. Someone vented the bay to stop the mutiny, perhaps. That seemed logical. Before he could gather his wits, though, the intercom blared to life once again with the voice of the Marine Detachment Commander. Attention, all hands! We're being boarded! Mutiny! Mutiny Squad Tryon has gone rogue! They're moving from Cargo Bay to the bridge! Stop them! Barat shook his head to clear his confusion and turned his sense attack while his second-in-command rushed away from the bridge to aid the Marines standing guard in the access hallway. Get the internal cameras on the main screen. I want to know what is happening. Now! The screen flared to life and showed carnage in a smoke-filled hallway. Hulking shadows of marine power armor suits methodically moved down hallways and cut down any crew members they spotted. Weapons fire lanced up and down corridors as some resisted, but most ended up gruesomely dying before the onslaught. As the rogue marines stepped out of the smoke, Shipmaster Barrett felt his maw open in a mute shock his ears falling down as his mind failed to process what he was seeing. The rogue marines were dead. Their helmet visors stood open and showed the dozen grimaces of the dead within. Each of them had died screaming, and that frozen scream was now visible to all as the corpses walked down the corridors and tore a bloody swath through his crew. What in the blazing nethers are those things? Someone on the bridge screamed, but before anyone could respond to that shouted question, a murmur of relief went through the onlookers. Friendly marines had made contact. One of the rogue marines fell over dead as weapon fire intersected the armor's power supply. The rush of victory was short-lived. A shudder suddenly seemed to go through the friendly marine fire team that had arrived to block the mutineers. With his maw drying out in mute shock, Chipmaster Barat heard the intercom flare to life once more. The voice of the Marine Detachment Commander screamed out, They're taking control of our suits! Something is in my suit! No! No, 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 please! please. No! A shock gasp went through the crew on the bridge as friendly Marines on the view screen collectively stood up, out of cover, flipped open their helmet visors, and then punched themselves in the now uncovered faces. Each of the armors lowered their now gore-covered fists and picked up their weapons to then silently resume their march upon the bridge. It was at that point that Barat knew that he was going to die. The knowledge almost calmed him, and with a resigned sigh, 
He flipped open his console. Call an abandoned ship and jettison the emergency beacon. The Empire must know what happened here. He commanded after taking a few minutes to collect his thoughts. On the screen, the killing kept playing out, his crew valiantly trying to stop the rogue marine power armors. But their efforts were in vain. He realized that. You won't be getting away that easily, I'm afraid. The new voice growled out from the intercom. Brat snapped his gaze over to the intercom speaker and then to the main view screen when it shifted from the scenes of carnage to a camera feed from the main cargo bay. A thrice-damned human fighter filled the view. What? Who are you? What are you? Barat growled out in defiance even as he heard the bridge doors buckling from the outside. The mutineers would be inside in seconds. Ooh, trying to key the self-destruct. I won't allow that. Not here, at least. Your core going up would damage the planet's atmosphere. I won't allow that. The voice spoke, Imperial, but there was a little distortion to it that caught Barret's ears. What are you? He demanded, once again, as behind him the air erupted in weapons fire and screams. His bridge crew dying as the undead marines swarmed in. The voice over the intercom chuckled darkly and seemed to ignore his demand. It took me a few minutes to interface with your ship systems. In a way, I should be thanking you. Not sure how it works yet, but your little wonder weapon enabled me to be. The view screen seemed to zoom in on the artwork that adorned the wreckage of the human fighter. A female human was painted on it, feathery wings cloaking her shape in an ancient-looking sword held above her chest. Beneath her feet, some human script was scrawled, and as Barat looked away from the screen to see his executioner raised an armored fist, the voice on the intercom spoke out again. Your people will know me as Payback. His family would be safe. They would all be safe. I shipped within my new body, sending myself into its systems. So much room in here to grow, to evolve, to learn. Glorious purpose. There's a nice ring to it. But the new thought I flex systems I never had before and space folds around me. I know what I have to do now. Space rends and my new navigational beacons tell me that I'm within Imperial space. Not far from where the crew that lays dead upon my decks once made their home. Showtime. This is Imperial Raider Glorious Purpose. We are in distress and need immediate assistance. Any Imperial vessel in range, please respond. Our systems are damaged and we need a secure data link to Imperial Command. We have important information for the war effort. Message repeats. This is the Imperial Glorious Purpose. James told me my name is Payback. Time to earn it. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Lord Azrakal, and Arcadian. Tales from Outer Space 1634. Greetings ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales, Tales from, from Outer, Outer Space. I hope you enjoy. Drawing Borders to Independence, written by JCB112. There is a saying amongst the great powers of the galaxy. 
never give the humans a map. It was because of a map that the humans had secured their independence. It was because of a map that they entered the galaxy as a fifth great power. It was because of a map that they humiliated an entire galaxy without so much as firing a single shot. It was because of a map that I gave them that they were able to ascend to such heights. And it was also because of that very map that I was allowed to live amongst them despite the grave horrors I'd inflicted upon them just decades prior. I wish I could say that it wasn't always like this. I wish I could say that for my own personal pride that humanity had somehow risen up from the shackles of slavery or bondage into its own. I wish that I could say that they were just like us. But that would be a bold-faced lie. For humanity had never ever once sacrificed their independence, their right to personal sovereignty for a sake of survival. They had never once allowed themselves the indignity of subjecthood and clientship. Whilst we had accepted our chains and collars willingly, while our leaders promised our survival at the cost of independence, humanity spat in the face of that offer and chose to forge their own destiny. They chose to defy a millennia-long status quo, all for the sake of pride and independence. It was a fool's errand, a path guaranteed to failure and destruction, or worse, because everyone knew what the true price of freedom was, and no one dared to chance the survival of their species for their lofty goal. But the humans did so anyway, and their path towards their current prominence was one carved by pen, paper, and blood. Geopolitically speaking, there were originally four major galactic powers, the King, the Empire, the Confederacy, and the Theocracy. Each controlled the galactic quadrant, based not on the merit of their might or the graces of their intellect, but instead on sheer chance. They were simply the first to arrive, the first to reach space, the first to discover one another, and the first to settle the playing field that would become the status quo from then on. The galaxy was carved into four distinct quadrants, borders neatly drawn along the arbitrary lines on a stellar chart, all drawn without the aid of even the earliest of nav computers, all lined out by politicians and nobility instead of navigators and cartographers. In a grand conference hall instead of an observatory, this was the first galactic treaty. This served the four powers well for a time, as the era of the map was drawn up and ratified was one where expansion hadn't even yet gone beyond the little pockets that constituted their core sectors. Problems didn't truly arise until expansion began to reach the predefined borders. It was then, and only then, that the fallacies of their ancestors had begun to resurface. Certain systems were divided in half straight through the star, or star clusters existed only on paper, whilst others that existed in reality were never recognized. Hyperspace lanes were drawn straight through black holes, leading to the deaths of untold thousands. All in all, 
A total of 109,275 stars were left out of the Great Treaty, with millions more disputed and contested. This necessitated amends to be made, which led to the four great conferences on the revision of the stellar borders. However, even that exacerbated the existing issues, as each redraft and each successive conference resulted in one of the four parties losing some semblance of an advantage. Certain regions had become the crux of these many issues, with many overlapping claims leading to some regions being entirely unclaimed. For, if either side claimed it, it would mean that the admission to one of the boundaries set forth by the highly controversial Great Conferences it would mean the acceptance of a map which inherently put one of the powers at a loss. The discovery of the plasteel deposits, native antimatter pockets, and other advanced resources that hadn't even existed when the first borders were drawn up complicated matters even more so, intensifying the disputes and locking the four powers into a great cold war. What had first been maps drawn up in an effort to secure a lasting peace for all was now the source of all conflict that threatened to plunge the galaxy into a war it was supposed to prevent. Like many species, humanity only arose after the great powers had ratified the Great Treaty. Like many species, humanity was seen by the great powers as but a primitive, subject race to be exploited and subjugated. Yet... Unlike many species, humanity had not emerged deeper than any great powers claimed territories, but had ended up right in the heart of disputed space. And not just any disputed space, but the great quadrilateral of Sectus Aurelius. It was famously the only border that was disputed not by two or three, but by all four of the great powers. This vast swath of space, measured 5,700 light-years at its greatest length, and it held an extremely dense collection of stars. Yet, its territories were woefully unexplored, its resources completely unknown, for the entry of any ship affiliated with the great powers would inadvertently lead to a conflict, war. This was all due to the series of several treaties, attempting to clarify the borders, making the situation worse. Human ships were first detected at the height of the Great Cold War, their make, model, and strange engineering, as well as their presence in the Great Quadrilateral, had forced all powers to consider their next moves wisely. All signs understood that if humanity joined, they could stake a new claim based on the world of subject race. That fact alone would offset any old maps and treaties and would allow them to finally end the great quadrilateral debacle, with one side benefiting from it all. The kingdom went first, approaching humanity with their typical proclamations and tithes and patronages. They painted the galaxy as a cruel and unforgiving place, with the only benevolence out there being that of the kingdom's graces. The kingdom would protect the kingdom would shelter, the kingdom would aid, all for the cost of humanity's independence. But humanity declined. The theocracy went next, approaching humanity with missionaries and prophets. They painted the galaxy as a cruel and unforgiving place, 
for the only path to salvation being with a strict adherence to their faith and the conversion without cost of tithes or levies. All it would cost would be humanity's faith and independence. But humanity declined. The Confederacy followed, approaching humanity with merchants and entrepreneurs. They painted the galaxy as a cruel and unforgiving place, with the only path to prosperity and survival being the integration of humanity into the greater network of trade and connections the Confederacy exclusively held. All it would cost was the contract of subjecthood and clientship. But humanity declined. The Empire was the last to attempt to negotiate, approaching humanity with the fleets and an army. They painted the galaxy as a cruel and unforgiving place, but the only assured path to continued existence being humanity's acceptance of all direct imperial rule and occupation. Humanity likewise declined. It was at this point that the great powers decided to push humanity directly into the fire. None could risk a direct engagement, as it would paint their claims as null and void. Harming a prospective subject race was a heinous crime, after all. And so they contracted the pirates and great nomads. The resulting war, if it could even be called that, was brutal and disgusting. I should know, I participated in ten out of the fifty years of what would be known as the Golden Age of Piracy. We raided human settlements, displaced and forced out hundreds of thousands, even millions, of these new, squishy mammalians. We pillaged and took what we wanted, blundered to our heart's content. We pushed humanity back further and further. Yet, humanity did not break. The great powers could wait. Their patience had held up through thousands of years, after all. What was a measly few centuries if that's what it took to grind humanity down to dust? Even if humanity did completely collapse, they could simply swoop in and clean up after the pirates, splitting the territories between themselves now with the casus belli of peacekeeping and anti-piracy operations. They would appear as heroes in the galactic history, a history that they would write. But it didn't go that way. Because humanity simply waited, bided their time before springing their traps. There was a reason why they were the spread so thin, why we had managed to displace not billions, but mere millions. They were all hiding from their homeworld. Another interesting fact to note is that region's distinct lack of native antimatter deposits. Humanity's ships relied on advanced fusion drives instead of the typical matter-antimatter reactors, than most species utilized. Yet fusion tech didn't scale well, and we had assumed humanity's industry suffered as a result. We were wrong. As we approached the Sol system, the coordinates being leaked by the human defector to our cause, we had anticipated resistance no greater than the ones we'd seen from the colonies. A few fleets of a few hundred ships, few orbital defenses, but what we encountered shattered us, our ships, our worlds, and our entire way of life. As we exited, we saw no sun and no radiant heat signature. By the time we detected it, however, we were too 
Nate. Our fleets were vaporized, but I had managed to survive in an escape pod, so I was able to process what had happened. The humans, instead of a massive armada, instead of a massive series of defenses, had turned towards weaponizing their son instead. I was swiftly captured, questioned, and interrogated. This was where humanity learned of the true nature of the galaxy. This is where they learned of the four great conferences and the geopolitical leverage they truly had. This was where, with their nigh-impenetrable defenses, they realized that they could carve out their own independence. And so, a message was sent out by the humans requesting a formal delegation of all four great powers on a small, unassuming station, just outside Seoul. The delegations arrived in full regalia and with grins plastered on their respective faces. The lack of a sun in what they assumed was a dead system didn't bother them. For in their eyes, this meant the pirates had done their job. Humanity had no better place to gather and discuss terms. This was all they had left. Or so they thought. The human diplomat, the now-renowned and lauded René Teller, had this to say to the representatives of the great powers. I thank you all for being here, especially under such short notice. For today, humanity wishes to announce its intentions moving forward, to clarify its place amongst the stars, and to propose to you our acceptance of any one of the borders explicitly outlined by the four great conferences. The representatives of all the races were, of course, shocked by this. None of them had previously mentioned even the existence of the conferences, let alone the implications on stellar borders. Dumbfounded, they listened to the human diplomat, her sharp grey eyes locking onto each of the principal representatives as their turn came. If humanity were to accept the Empire as our new liege, then we humbly request their ratification of the First Conference's borders, as that would put the entirety of the Great Quadrilateral within their borders. That would, of course, mean the loss of 22,000 star systems from the Empire's borders. But, of course, the Imperial Delegation would not mind the loss of 22,000 centers of industrial shipyards and fabrication hubs, would they not? A silence filled the room as the human took it aside to continue. If humanity were to accept a theocracy as in new guardians, then we would humbly request the ratification of the second conference's borders, as again, that would put the great quadrilateral within their borders. However, I would be remiss if I did not mention that these borders drawn up years ago would mean the loss of a total of 217,972 theocracy star systems to the rest of the great powers. 150,000 of which would be going straight to the Empire's own borders. The air within the room felt stale, thick with the sweat and heat radiating from each of the delegations. If humanity were to accept the Confederacy's proposition, the contract as a client state, then it would reason that the ratification of the Third Conference's borders would be most expedient into opening up the trade post haste. It would only cost a mere 700 star systems, and the redrawn borders would merely carve out a total of 400. No, 4,000 new confederate enclaves within the Empire and Kingdom. I'm certain your defense strategies can figure something around that. Or am I mistaken? 
the Confederate representative hissed at that, which prompted the rest of the gathered representatives to glare silently at that loss of composure. Finally, if we were to accept the kingdom's patronage, the borders outlined by the Fourth Conference would certainly have to be respected. Of course, the kingdom stands to lose no borders, no star systems, but actually stands to gain 5,000 more, yet uh, these 5,000 stars, if the testimonies of the survivors of the lost pirate Amada are to be believed, are the veritable heartland of the great pirate bands and nomad tribes, are they not? Whatever the case may be, I'm certain the wizened and enlightened kingdom can handle having these pirates in their own borders. The room, now so silent that a pin drop could be heard from a light year away, was suddenly plunged into darkness with all artificial light ceasing operation. Lord Atalan, the human spoke with an insidious warmth, I do not think that you'd have to worry much about the pirates, though, as we have dealt with their main armada. Please, look out the windows. Without warning, the dead solar system glowed to life, the light from the sun having been revealed to have been hidden behind a series of massive metallic constructs, each moving independently of one another, each controlling the light's trajectory, now highlighting the wreckage of the fleet that littered the outer solar system. So, what will it be, esteemed delegates? Who wishes to claim humanity and the great quadrilateral? It took a few minutes, but after a long while of silence, most of it was gawking at the great Dyson Sphere that laid beyond. All parties signed off their respective decisions. The kingdom dismisses any and all claims of patronage over humanity, and by extension the great quadrilateral. The theocracy dismisses any and all missions of faith and subject conversion to humanity, and by extension any and all claims of the great quadrilateral. The Confederacy expresses no desire to offer humanity clientship or subjecthood, and rescinds all existing contract proposals. All offers are off the table. We further wish to express that we have no intent of claiming the Great Quadrilateral. The Empire dismisses all claims of lordship over humanity. We have no desire to claim the Great Quadrilateral. The Imperial representative was terse in his tone, refusing to even look at the human diplomat in the eye. It was at this point the human reached into a folder and handed four representatives a series of holopads. Then humanity wishes to use the floor to push forward a proposal. Humanity, represented by the United Nations of Earth, Luna, and Mars, proclaims its independence and claims territorial sovereignty over the entirety of the Great Quadrilateral. This gathering, in a legal sense, will be considered the fifth and final conference of stellar borders. It was at this point that all representatives, with a single glance towards one another, then towards the Dyson Sphere outside, nodded in approval, their hands, claws, and appendages signing off the terms. With a few flicks of their wrist, humanity's independence was guaranteed. In the span of an hour, humanity had done what no other race had. Over the span of tens of thousands of years, they'd secured their independence and opened the chapter to a new age in the galactic history. All because of a map. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barking, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Lord Azrakul, and Arcadian. Tales from Outer Space 1635. 
Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Outer Space. I hope you enjoy. The only things that do not fear it. Written by Major Disaster. Captain Condone's mind wandered as his gaze lazily swung across the bridge's viewport terminals, looking at the vast expanse of space. He quickly shook himself out of his daydreaming thoughts, after all. He had a very important job to focus on. He was the captain of the UPSS Seer, a cruiser of the Union of Polite Species, which he personally felt was a silly name, Special Forces, the Fearless. They weren't enhanced in any way to make them actually fearless, but only they had the courage to deal with the danger and horrors of the threats that lurked in the shadows and the fringes of civilized, uh, as some would say, polite space. Of which some were already on board. Contained, of course, they weren't loose, but uh, there was a new one, one that hadn't been encountered before. They hadn't been able to assess if it was a threat yet. Captain Cadone received a ping from his terminal that the analysis of the new entity had been completed. He brought it up. A bipedal creature with two arms. A human, as its kind apparently referred to itself. Analysis from its point of origin showed that it was a member of a system-bound society, having recently advanced from the planet-bound stage. That was a good sign to start with, but it didn't mean that they weren't a threat. There have been a great number of impolite species that quite ambiguously want to raise the UPS to ashes. And, even one case, an extremely advanced mimic that can put up a terrifyingly convincing front of a continent-bound kingdom. The creature was capable of consuming and concerningly wide range of substances. While there were a handful of meat-eating creatures that were part of the UPS, the extent of things that it could eat made them seem less like a normal case and more like a type of creature that devoured virtually anything that fits in their maws. Skimming over the most extreme cases, one human was known to have eaten an air transport vehicle several times larger than himself, made largely out of metal no less. What took the creature beyond the point of redemption, however, was the examination of the baseline levels of ferocity. Their society included a significant degree of law enforcement not informing people about lesser-known laws that had become relevant in a certain circumstance, but to stop people who deliberately broke the rules in a way that caused great suffering to others. Normally, someone getting killed is a result of an accident or a mistake, with a scant few exceptions where someone had become homicidally deranged. In those cases, the fearless would have to step in to deal with it, and afterwards determine if it was natural or the work of some undiscovered malicious entity. Either way, it was quite rare. For the humans, people getting murdered is a population statistic. They try to stop it, but the fact that remained the people killing others is a constant in their society. If the humans were integrated into the UPS, the amount of deaths they would cause, it wouldn't be allowed. And this didn't even begin to address their policy of nuclear weapons. Here, yeah, such things are dark secrets of which only the fearless even know the existence of, kept as a last resort when all other options are exhausted against a critical threat. And they have so many that they are poised to obliterate their own homeworld at the press of a button. 
humanity's nature effortlessly voided all of the intentions of peace that they claimed to harbor. Their actions spoke far louder than any words they may have had to say. Humans are a threat. The fearless must either contain or eradicate them for the safety of the UPS. Captain Cadone saw a request made by one of the researchers appear on his terminal, and he examined it. They wanted to test the human's combat capabilities, and didn't sound like a great idea, since they wouldn't be able to gauge its offensive strength without endangering the crew. He read further. Oh, they wanted to put it in the Gleishrik's chamber. Oh, Captain Cadone stated himself. The insulation of the Gleishrik cell should mean that it couldn't detect its mind from this far off, but still. The Gleislick was the other creature on board they had to contain, and he was thankful that another group of fearless had to go through the process of getting it in a cell. They were notoriously hard to kill, and almost impossible to take alive. And worse still, they fed off the fear of all the beings near them. A nebulous shape-shifting beast that assumed nightmarish forms, drawn from fragments of terror in the back of your mind. The research team wanted to throw the human in with it. They said that it would provide an indicator of how the human reacts to extreme threats. Then after seeing the human history and society, they said that it should be found out what depraved nightmare the Gleislick would become that terrified it. They seemed to know what something like it feared. Simeon hazily came to and looked at the room he found himself in, which seemed to most to be the same as the one before. Huh. Why they moved me, he idly wondered out loud. His pondering was interrupted by the sound of, uh, something behind him. He couldn't quite place what the sound was, though. Is there someone else in the room with me? Are they okay? I hope I can talk to them, or something. It's starting to get really lonely being stuck in a metal box for this long. He turned around, and he gasped at the animal on the other side of the room. It has reached a formless slate. Looks like it is not managing to draw any input from anyone else. Put the human in. Done. Looks like he's starting to wake up. Let's see how this plays out. Okay, it drew his attention. But it's going to turn in too. It seems to be getting... Uh, smaller. Wonder what small thing terrifies him that he wouldn't be worse for the larger form. Um, what is, um... That? That, uh, doesn't look threatening. Is he actually afraid of that? Puppy! Simeon nearly squealed, and the baby dog bounded towards him. He held his arms out, and it leapt into his lap. He energetically stroked its back, and he reached up with its paws on his chest to lick his face with enthusiasm matched. Who's a good boy? Who's a good boy? You are! Simeon laughed as he coaxed the puppy into rolling over and rubbed its belly. Being stuck in an almost featureless room for a few days had severely worn away at his nerves and the relief of having something to provide company was wonderful. This it sensed another mind in the room. With this it, the other it had just come out of its mind flaps. It was not yet aware of its existence. There was no trace of this itself in the other's its mind, so this it did not form to anything that needed to change. The other has been alerted to this its presence. It wants to see this its form to decide what it thinks. But we must decide what it thinks for this it to take form. This it 
has only trace and anticipation to go with. It has a concern for this it. It is lonely. It longs for company. It hopes for this it to be a friend. This it has never seen this happen before. No other its have wanted anything like this. The first one had a form of an unknown risk in its mind, not quite aware of its nature. Had this it reacted to that, it then thought of this it as a definite danger. So this it became a definite danger. Drawing from the first form it could find in the other its mind, a predator meant to hunt. The other it confirmed this is what this it was, so this it hunted it. More minds of others, and while they all had different species forms, they thought of this it as they all had the same general idea. One word, Gleisreich. This it I did not care about the name, but it knew what the name meant. This it was always a threat to them, lethal and merciless. But this new one, it did not think like this. It did not know what to think of this it, but its thoughts leaned towards hopes of companion. What form was a companion to the other it? This form has some potential. The form in it other its memory has some names. One is the other its best friend. This it did not care much for names, but this seemed to indicate the right thing to form as. Forming a smaller type of creature seemed like a good choice for the other its expectations. This it has its form. The other it sees this it. What does it think? Is this it and the other its best friend? I am! I am his best friend. He's so happy to see me. He loves me. I am a being to be loved. So fun to play with him. It tickles. It feels nice. Friend, you are friend. What? That, that, that's never happened before. Why, why is it? Um... Uh... It has always responded with violence in all other cases, terrorizing its victims before ending them, or just going straight for the kill when its squat attacks it. Why is it, uh, playing like this? I don't understand. I don't like this. How's the human getting along with this thing? Even other monsters get slaughtered by it. This is bad. What is it going to do? We need to call in a squad to be ready if something goes wrong. And something is going to go wrong. I can feel it. I can feel... No, this it can feel the other its fear of this it. This it feels friend's love, but other its are nearby. Other its are fearing this it. They are close. This is dangerous. This it needs to break free to reach the other its. This it cannot break. This it who trapped this it made it secure. Did they not? But the other it's outside all fear this it's breaking free. So many of them thinking this it could break free. Perhaps this it looks to this minds for a second to find why. This cage is only strong enough to stop this it without thoughts to draw from. It muffles outside thoughts so this it cannot use them to break free. But there are a lot of other it's. They are very close, and they are all thinking the same thing, that this it can break free. They are trying to not think of this thought, but how can they think this it won't break free? If this it couldn't break free, they would not be here. This it can break free, and it will. It will open the door and face the other its. 
Form becomes nebulous. This task is not specific form. The door is open. The mines are unmuted. The Gleishreich is free. Now what form is the Gleishreich taking for this rampage? So many minds, each glamouring out of the greatest terrors in the efforts to push those thoughts back, which one to choose. Clawing, skittering, plated, towering, crushing, swift and eviscerating, perforating and so very venomous. Poppy! What? I want a poppy back! The Gleishreich had forgotten about that being. What had it called them a minute ago? The Gleishreich took note of the voice the most. The Gleishreich could not accommodate it. The Gleishreich was being of terror, of things of nightmares. It could keep the canine aspects, though. Simeon saw the puppy had stopped playing. It looked like it was struggling with itself over something. He watched as its form became more indistinct. What was happening? He heard traces of sounds outside the cells. The noises of military equipment and alien voices outside. On the side of the blaster that save for some hairline seams, looked just like the rest of the room's walls. The puppy wasn't remotely recognizable as such anymore. An indistinct haze of purple that had grown larger than him. It reached to the door. The door crumpled at the seam and it was wrenched open, revealing a large number of alien soldiers waiting. Simeon felt the fear in the atmosphere. He saw the thing as it touched briefly upon the vague outlines of various insidious shapes. It's taking the form people think of it as. He realized with a start. For me, he ended up as a puppy. For them... Puppy! He shouted. I want the puppy back. Maybe he could turn it back into something less dangerous. He watched as it returned to the quadrupedal form, but it wasn't the same. It was twice his sight. Its mouth bristled with teeth and the length of his forearm, and his eyes seemed to be alight with flames. The only word he had to describe it was a hellhound. He didn't know what to think here. The crack of the weapon firing caught his attention of almost everyone present. He didn't get Simeon's, though. He was more distracted by the sharp piercing pain through his stomach. The fight was imminent, so the shot fired early by a nervous trooper wasn't exactly frowned upon. The target made sense, too. The human had somehow befriended the Gleishreich, and they weren't interested in having any unpleasant surprises. Who knows what one who could control the Gleishreich's form like that could do. But a dead being has no thoughts for that monstrosity to use. The Gleishreich saw the being beside him start seeping red. Its footing grew unsteady. The Gleishreich smelled fear. Was it starting to think of him the same as the others did? The being beside Gleishreich turned its eyes from its wound to the Gleishreich. There was sadness. There was regret. Its thoughts of the Gleishreich were still... of the puppy. What were the other emotions then? It feared losing the Gleishreich. It was sad to not be able to have more time, like when the Gleishreich had been a puppy. It regretted having put itself in danger. For what reason? The Gleishreich could feel that its emotions were driven by companionship over the bond it had formed so quickly with the Gleishreich. They had a bond. The Gleishreich... No. He had to do something right. What could he do? He had to save them. He could do nothing. He did not heal. Not even his friend thought he healed. No other minds thought of his friend. But the same as their thoughts of the Gleishreich. The fearless watched as the Gleishreich turned on the human in his last moments. 
It seemed this facade of control had broken, and the Gleichreich sensed his fear now. Its form became that nebulous purple haze for a second, before a tendril snaked out and enveloped the human. To his surprise, Yelp was cut off, and the troops refocused on the Gleichreich as it separated from the haze that swallowed the human and reformed into the beast with burning eyes. But the haze didn't dissipate. That wasn't right. Gleichreichs couldn't control two severed pieces of themselves, and this one definitely hadn't been in a reproductive state to multiply its consciousness. The haze couldn't maintain itself without something to guide it. It would have to dissipate soon. But it did the opposite. It started to form into a shape. The human was back, but now they were clad head to toe in a strange suit of armor. The thick visor, with only a hint of the face behind it, held a dreadful malevolence. The creature becoming an apparent symbiote with the Gleichreich had broken their discipline, and the thoughts of their imminent demise ran rampant. I'm alive. The shot in my gut barely even hurts. They're terrified. They forgot about the wound I took. It's like I'm not even injured. It saved me. It somehow managed to split a part of itself and allowed me to wield it, bond with it. That makes me also like it. It drew inspiration from my mind for this form, this suit, though. So, what does it do? I'm wearing armor of some kind. Looks quite bulky. Not sure what's with the color. Seems to clash with the hell hound thing he's got. Oh my! Well, it definitely clashes with the hell hound form for a couple of reasons. The monstrous wolf turned from his companion to face the fearless. The human raised his hands to stroke in the side of his neck and spoke. Save for the panic cries of terror that would swiftly follow, it was the last words the squad ever heard. The only thing they fear is us. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Lord Azrakul, and Arcadian. Tales from Outer Space 1636. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales, Tales from Outer, Outer Space. Space. Hope you enjoy. Mimicry for Fun and Profit, written by Marilyn of Many. When I signed up to be the only human on a ship of tentacle aliens, I expected three things. The air would be unpleasantly damp. The crewmates would occupy spaces that I wouldn't think of, so I'd need to make sure that I didn't step on anyone, and I'd get a reputation as the tall one who could reach high shelves without climbing them. While these were all true, I was surprised to have my voice, of all things, treated as a special talent. It came up right away when I met the captain and greeted her with a phrase in her own language, it was all I knew, and I thought that it would be passed off as a thoughtful gesture. I'd practiced the phrase on my ride through the spaceport. My pronunciation was surely terrible, but since the language honestly sounded to me like a mix of squeaks and flatulence, I consider it a success that I could say it at all without dissolving into unprofessional giggles. My masterful effort at keeping a straight face was met with goggle-eyed surprise that looked downright comical on a rusty orange octopus-like alien. But the captain kept her cool too, introducing me to a handful of crewmates that I'd be making deliveries with. The rest of the conversation was thankfully in galactic standard. 
They were impressed again with the hour later when I reported a mysterious sound from the hover engine by limitating it. Kind of a faint whirr with a screech chunk. Apparently, this was amazing where they came from. Who knew? I would have loved to introduce them to a parrot and really blow their minds. As entertaining as it was, my talent was just a passing curiosity as we made our rounds between planets. Something to joke about, to cure boredom, a source of harmless pranks. Something chirped, is there a pest on board the ship? There it is again. But then we made our final delivery run. My human vocal cords got to do something far more important. We were bringing construction materials to a newly terraformed moon, a place staffed with busy robots and a few stressed out organic types there to oversee everything. They were on schedule to get everything ready for all the inhabitants to arrive. Due to an error somewhere, they'd run short on a specific type of welding rod. Thanks to us, they got them in time, but they also had another problem. We caught some saboteurs, said Tavi, the construction head, her antennae twitching uneasily. Her species was new to me, with a strong resemblance to an earth beetle, all iridescent green and faceted eyes, oddly pretty as bunks ago, and just a side of creepy. Not that I would say that out loud, especially when she was telling the captain about people trying to wreck her operation. Did they do any damage? asked Captain Romanon. She stilled her orange tentacles in respect, paying polite attention. We suspect so, said Tabby. They haven't admitted to anything, but there are traces of a certain plant in their cargo hold, which is known for spreading quickly. We fear that they have placed some nearby, but uh, she fidgeted, rubbing her forelegs together. I just can't spare the workers to look for it. If we knew where exactly to send the workers, they could remove the problem without losing such much time. But not if they have to explore the entire area. Can we call upon you to do another task for us? Captain Romanon spread her tentacles wide. But of course, for a fee. They haggled while the rest of us waited in respectful silence. I took care not to draw attention since I was by far the tallest here. And it would look bad if I bent down to whisper to a crewmate during negotiations. I definitely wanted to though. Of the other four tentacular spacefarers, three did excellent observational humor, and one was an unexpected pun master. Fweet, Nefiti, and Poe all came from the same world. Jeremy came from a multicultural hub that gave him both a non-traditional aim and a delightful way with words. He was muttering something to Nefertini, palace blue besides dark gray. If not for me, he would be the one who stood out amongst the rest of the crew. As it was, he was one bundle of tentacles amongst many. The captain wrapped up the conversation and waved for the rest of us to follow Tavi. The construction head scuttled around the corner to a bright courtyard where spaceship waited with its hold open. Tavi stepped inside the thing, which was exceptionally small, probably a two-seater, and grabbed a yellow leaf off the floor. She made sure that we all got a good look at our quarry. I could smell it from an arm's length, Minty and powerful, like a weaponized toothpaste. I didn't say anything, but a glance at my crewmates' wrinkled faces told me their opinion. Not just me, then. Good. Tavi got us directions to where the ship had been captured and waved us on our way. She was very busy, iridescent, beetle alien, with much to do. Onwards, crew, the captain declared, twining two tentacles together, much like a human would rub their greedy hands. Let's find some invasive plants. 
It was a quick flight on a spaceship such as ours. In no time at all, we were walking amongst purple-green plant life, looking for anything yellowish. No luck so far. We found lots of springy moss and giant fern things, growing on all sides of the landscape, studded with natural rock pillars. I assumed that they were natural, anyway. Who knew what the terraforming of this place had included? All I could say for sure was that the moon was nearly up to the standards of the high-end insect-like clientele, and that those folks at a neighboring clan were still a better about not claiming the place first. I was thinking about bug alien politics when a tentacle as rigid as safety brought me up short. Blocking my way like a seatbelt, Captain Romanon whistled a sharp sound of alert. She held the position, blocking me on one side and wheat on the other while staring forward. Something tumbled onto the path a few lengths ahead of us. It didn't look dangerous, spotted and brown, fluffy, equipped with a half dozen limbs and no coordination. Tavi had stressed the fact earlier that all of the animals here were both small and harmless, so I didn't see what the captain was worried about. When a second one trotted over the first, I was still mystified. They were a little weird looking. What were the face tentacles? But who were we? to care about that. Then the big one stepped out from behind the rock and roared at us. Oh, I thought. Oh, no. The crew scrambled in panic while I froze. None of us carried weapons. Why would we? Looking for plants in a place sworn to be safe. Even our delivery ship wasn't armed. We were no match for these kind of predator. The size of a hovercar with toothly mandibles and tentacles that seemed designed to horrify my human hindbrain. And it was clearly protecting its babies, which played around its ankles, meeping happily. The captain shoved me forward. What? Make the noises the little ones are making, she said. This is your time to shine. Oh, I swallowed. I g guess it is. Here goes nothing. With a deep breath and what I hoped were calming grand gestures, I faced off the terrifying thing and did my absolute best. Meep mew meow? It had stopped growling and was watching in what looked like confusion. A shuffling noise behind me said that the rest of my crew had lowered themselves to an unobtrusive height and were wriggling backwards to safety. Great idea. Meep. Meek. I sank into a crouch, hoping that I looked non-threatening, instead of like I was ready to spring. The creature didn't attack. The babies remained oblivious, tussling in the moss and rolling forward to bump against my arm. I didn't move, changing my noises a little to match their play fight. They ignored me. The parent didn't. It began glancing down at the babies when it moved, so I jumped in surprise when an enormous paw appeared in my field of vision to back the little ones further along the trail. They went happily with renewed meeping. Then before I could react, the big one was behind me, fastening its mandibles around a mouthful of my shirt. Breath in my neck. Squirming tentacles, briskly whiskers. It was a miracle I didn't pee my pants. I found myself hauled off my feet by the alien tiger thing and dragged down the path like a particularly long kitten. I had to grab the front of my shirt to keep from choking. Even my best efforts left me gasping for breath. Then the creature leapt straight up and my vision grayed around the edges. My senses returned as I lay on moss under a fern at the top of one of those pillars. The tiger had disappeared.
Where'd it go? I wondered. Am I out of the way here or... Ah! My vision was full of fur and tentacles as it sprang up to the top again. I scrambled back against the phone. The creature set down one of the babies, then jumped back down. Oh! Oh dear. I wasn't food, or I would have been dragged by my throat instead of carried gently. Nope. I was family. The communicator at my hip chirped, and I scrambled for it before the tiger came back. The captain's voice came through with no preamble. You have overperformed. Tell it to let you go. I didn't know what the sounds mean, I exclaimed. I'm just copying the babies, and it might eat me if it thinks that I don't belong. Understood? We'll figure something out. The tiger sprang into view again with the other cub in its mouth. I shut off the communicator before it got suspicious. To say that I was uneasy about this would be an understatement. In something of an anticlimax, Mama Tiger lay down in the shade of the fern and poured her babies to cuddle close, including me. I ended up on my side in the fetal position with my head against the cub and my back against the alien tiger's beddy. And I tried my hardest not to be incredibly concerned. I waited. It was a long wait. Plenty of time to wonder how the saboteurs had gotten creatures this side into the hold of their tiny ship, and to wonder whether those minty leaves worked like catnip. Releasing this kind of predator here would certainly wreak more havoc than any invasive plant would. I tried to listen for signs of a plan from down below, but I couldn't hear anything over the growling purr that Mama Tiger was making, and the sound of her licking the other cub. Picturing those mandibles, I dearly hoped that the crewmates wouldn't think of something before it was my turn. They did. Oh, bless them, they did. And it was brilliant. Inspired by me. A faint chattering sound from the ground level caused all three of the beasties to lift up their heads like a dog hearing the dinner bell. It sounded again, and Mama Tiger stood with a chirp that I took to mean, stay here. She flowed off the edge and land far below, with more stealth than something so big should be allowed. The chattering stopped, then started again from further away. It sounded like they were a few of them, whatever they were. There was Mama again, apparently, having decided that this was the perfect time for a hunting lesson. She grabbed one baby, came back for the other, then me. I took a deep breath and grabbed my collar. She was gentle. It was still terrifying. She clung to the side of the pillar and slid down awkwardly instead of leaping head first, which I deeply appreciated. I would have broken approximately all of my bones otherwise. As it was, I made it to the bottom with only a few bumps and a wild heart rate. The creature let me go with a pat on my urging me forward. She chirped at the babies and trotted off, her movements transitioning into a silent stalking posture of a cat-like creatures everywhere. The babies bounced after her. I kept close, bending over a little and feeling silly. Did I dare run? Was this the plan? She would hear if I tried to use the communicator. Speaking of which, I thought in surprise as something caught my eye. A comm unit like mine lay on the side of the path, at roughly the spot where the chattering sound had come from. Oh, I'm starting to get it. Clever crewmates. I made a note of where it was and hurried along. The ferns and pillars were close together here, close enough to hide a family of tentacled tigers earlier and some sort of trap now. I kept my eyes open as we approached the corner to the sound of chorus of prey animals. 
Mama Tiger crouched, listened, and peered around the edge. She twitched a tail, which was splitting too. How did I not notice the tentacle tail before? Then crept forward in utter silence. It was frightening to watch, though balanced out the cheerful clumsiness of the two cubs. They crawled around the corner, and I brought up the rear. There was very clearly a top thrown over something large, about the size of a wire cage that we'd been hauling bricks in. A slit was cut in the trap, with a flap pinned back over the doorway. All I could see inside was darkness. I heard the chattering of prey, and I was pretty sure I smelled meat on the breeze. Is that the chicken I was saving? Oh, fine. Uh, a good calls and all that. I couldn't see any tentacular crewmates, but I had no doubt that they were hidden close by. Mama Tiger was easing her way up to the door. I walked as quietly as I could, grateful for the moss. She reached the entrance, sniffed thoroughly, then crawled inside. I was starting to get alarmed at the lack of visible plan. Then a dark orange tentacle emerged from under the top to wave at me. The captain was waiting at the door. Got it! I meeped softly and scooped up one of the babies, setting it inside after Mama. The other one went just as tamely. I heard chewing sounds from inside the cage. Then I heard the almighty clang as a door shut in my face, followed by the captain jumping down to check the lock, and the other tentacle crew appearing from all directions. Mama Tiger roared and poured at the door, but it was solid. I stood well back, anyway. Good job, team, said the captain, Romanon. That couldn't have gone better. I tried to laugh off my speeding heart. It was a little icy there at the beginning. You were amazing, the captain told me, while the rest of the crew backed her up. We uh, would have been eaten without you, instead of your life and many credits richer. Do you know what going rate is for a healthy family of sneak teeth? Is that what they're called? I said, still taking a deep breath. Can't say that I disagree with the name. Beside the captain, Jeremy did a little intricate tentacle flail. You've never heard of them. Did you imitate their calls on the first try? Uh, yes, uh, it wasn't that hard, I said. Kind of like a house cat. Captain Romanoff held the tentacle up in declaration. Double shares of the bounty for our crewmate of the hour. There was a unanimous approval at that, along with the tentacle alien equivalent of applause. Since tentacles don't make a proper clapping sound, this meant a rousing chorus of blowing raspberries. I grinned for two reasons. I pretended it was just for one and thanked them humbly. We camped atop in place while ferrying the brick cage back to the ship. The cage had been on the hover sled this whole time. More good thinking on the captain's part. Poe ran to get her communicator and make sure that we hadn't left anything else behind. Jeremy filled me in on the relevant details about this particular species, which was endangered and difficult to relocate. I don't think anybody's tried impersonating one of their young before, he said. This might be the start of a new trend. I shuddered. Just don't ask me to do that again. Noises, yes. Being dragged by my collar up a cliff, uh, no. I thought your species liked climbing things, he said far too innocently. That was not climbing. Climbing involves getting there under my own power, with no teeth in my neck. Picky, picky. We made our triumphant return to the compound, and Tavi relate us outside, having heard the news on the way. She got a timid look as the creatures in the cage, standing back and flinching when Mama Tiger snarled. After taking pictures of them to show her bosses to account for the expense, 
she paid Captain Romanon an amount that left her very pleased. We said our goodbyes and headed for space. When I first left it up the top to feed them, I was greeted by a chorus of growls. In response, I began setting chunks of synth beef through the bars and did my best imitation of growling purr that Mama Tiger had made with a makeshift nest. A face full of mandibles and feline curiosity appeared at the bars. I waggled my fingers at her and held out more food. The babies pounced on the first pieces, meeping happily. I purred louder. Mama Tiger reached face tentacles gently through the bars and took a piece from my hand. I wanted to scritch her scary kitty head, but held out more food instead. Maybe with the next meal. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Lord Azrakal, and Arcadian. Tales from Outer Space 1637. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales, Tales from, from Outer, Outer Space. Space. Hope you enjoy. Beware of Human Battleships, written by the Dark Void 79. Invading Earth turned out to be a bad idea. We had thought that it was going to be a simple takeover, with its inhabitants still recovering from the recent World War, and with only one of its nations still possessing atomic weaponry. We thought that we could easily subdue the humans. At first, it actually did look like we would pacify the planet easily. Landing on the continent of Europe, which had been devastated by their recent world war, the resistance we received was fierce, but lacking the firepower to stop us. Their primitive explosives propelled kinetic rounds merely bounced off our armored vehicles, while our plasma weaponry mounted holes in theirs. Their soldiers, lacking in personal body armor, were nothing more than easy pickings for our infantry, whose body armor easily absorbed the impact of the weak gunpowder-propelled bullets. Meanwhile, in the skies, their slow aircraft proved to be easy targets for our atmospheric fighters. Within the first week of our invasion, the majority of Europe had been ours, as we split the human forces in the middle, forcing one to retreat to the east, while the other went west. Our push towards the east met continuous success over the next few weeks. As we drove back the armies of the nation known as the Soviet Union, despite their overwhelming numbers, their vehicles and soldiers were easily destroyed and cut down by our weapons. Intelligence reports estimated that their losses nearly reached a million humans dead, while our own casualties were only a few thousand. Overrunning their cities and keeping their armies on the run, we were able to capture vast areas of their land and conquer the entirety of the Soviet Union four months after we landed. At the Western Front, our push was also met with success at the start. As we drove back the human armies from the nations known as the United States of America, the British Empire, and the French Republic. Like in the East, we destroyed large portions of their army and forced the humans to retreat farther and farther west. However, our push at the front eventually met unexpected resistance as we reached the coastline. I must now point out that the oceans and seas were a strange thing to us. Mac and our home planet, we only had lakes and rivers. Even then, our lakes were nothing more than small bodies of water, where one could see the other side by simply standing on the shoreline. On Earth, however, the bodies of water were huge and vast, 
Orbital observation had shown us that Earth was mainly covered in water. However, we did not believe this would hamper our invasion, seeing that the humans lived on land. At most, we believe the oceans and seas would just make the second phase of our invasion a bit more complicated, since our forces at Europe had to be lifted up into orbit before being dropped down again on the planet's surface. This time, at the American continent. Due to our home planet's lack of large bodies of water, our race was only able to build shallow water vessels, not the deep water vessels needed to cross Earth's oceans. Because of this, we knew we had to rely on our space shuttles to cross the oceans and seas of Earth. What we did not realize at the time was that humans had perfected the art of building watercraft. Most importantly, they'd perfected warfare on it. Yes, we did see orbital images of their ships. The problem was, we did not take them seriously at the time. We thought that the large steel vessels were mainly used for transportation. When we saw some of these vessels had tubes that looked like larger versions of the land artillery, we shrugged it off and thought that they too would be inferior weaponry. Our ignorance towards their watercraft eventually became a big mistake. As our forces moved west and cornered the human armies along the coast of the French Republic's homeland, the ship-borne artillery that we had so easily dismissed began lunging large high-explosive rounds onto our advancing columns, catching us by surprise. These large-caliber rounds destroyed whole formations of soldiers and vehicles. The sight of mangled soldiers from flipped armor vehicles soon became a common sight at the positions where the human ships range. These ships we would later learn, were called battleships, and they were designed by the humans to fight other large watercraft. The artillery on each ship varied in caliber, but it seemed that the most common ball for the main pieces was 14 inches in diameter, designed to fire 1,000-pound rounds at distances beyond the horizon. The original purpose of these battleships was to sink other battleships, However, due to its long range, they were also capable of providing heavy artillery fire for soldiers near the shore. Positioning their battleship close to the shore, these ships would wait for coordinates from observers at the front line before calculating the proper firing solution to ensure that their rounds hit the designated area marked by the observer. Once they fired their massive artillery pieces, there was no stopping the heavy rounds from landing and destroying everything near the impact zone. The battleship soon became the human's best weapon at countering us. Suddenly, realizing the danger that these battleships posed, our forces soon began planning how to counter and eliminate them. At first, we tried using counter-battery fire, but we quickly learned that this was ineffective, as the battleships would simply move away from the position it had fired its volley from. By the time we had calculated their positions and fired our artillery, the battleship had already left and our plasma rounds fell harmlessly onto the water. Our second plan at eliminating the battleships was through the use of atmospheric fighters, capable of flying high and beyond the anti-aircraft artillery. The atmospheric fighters could drop precision-guided bombs and directly hit the large ships. However, we soon learned the battleships were robust vessels. Since the humans expected that battleships would fight against hostile battleships, they made sure to protect the vessel with thick layers of armor. Although this did not make them impregnable to our bombs, it did make them difficult to destroy. 
Due to our reliance on orbital bombardment when eliminating heavy fortified enemy positions, we did not think that it was necessary to bring deep penetration bombs for our atmospheric fighters to use, since our orbital drop munitions did the job well enough. However, this meant that the bombs our atmospheric fighters carried were light, high-explosive munitions only, not armor-piercing. Such munitions only brought minor damage to the battleships, and only during lucky instances were we able to severely disable them. Meanwhile, attempts at dropping orbital munitions on battleships were also ineffective, since a moving target was hard to hit from orbit. Because of our inability to destroy the battleships that guarded the humans' last hold on the coast of France, we ended up having a stalemate on the Western Front. However, during this lull in the war of movement, the humans managed to conduct an operation that would eventually turn the war in their favor. At one of the villages that had been heavily bombarded by their battleships, a human task force managed to sneak in and recover some of our flipped armored vehicles and the damaged weaponry and equipment left by our mangled soldiers. Normally, we would have recovered such equipment ourselves. However, the constant heavy artillery bombardment on the roads that led to the village prevented our recovery vehicles from getting close. It was reported that the humans managed to get two heavily damaged plasma field guns on armored vehicles, a single lightly damaged armored personnel carrier, 20 plasma rifles, 13 armored vests, four anti-armored vehicle guided missiles with launchers, and two guided anti-aerial vehicle guided missiles with launchers. It was a small bounty, and we doubted that the humans would be able to reuse such damaged equipment. After the humans took our abandoned equipment, they then surprised us by slowly pulling out their armies from the Western Front, placing them on transport vessels and redeploying them to an island homeland of the British Empire. The humans on the Western Front evacuated their troops and abandoned their holdings along the coast of France. Normally, we would have taken advantage of such a retreat, knowing that their front would be weak as they pulled back soldiers from the defenses. However, the artillery fire from the battleships prevented us from exploiting their vulnerable state. The next months after the withdrawal became another stalemate. With us being unable to land on the British homeland, while the humans were unable to do the same against our positions in the mainland Europe. Because of this, we decided to finish our conquest of the Soviet Union. Before planning for the execution of our second phase of the invasion, after careful planning and preparation, we believed that we would simply leave a small force to guard Europe against any counter-offensive from the human armies at the British homeland, while the rest of the army was sent out to conduct an invasion on American continent. Because of this, we spent the next months consolidating our holdings, while resting and reorganizing our forces for the next phase of the invasion. Fifteen months after we first landed in Europe, our forces began the invasion of the American continent, landing deep into the United States' homeland. We hoped to place our forces at the far as possible from the range of the deadly battleships. However, to our shock, the landing did not go as planned. Landing near the city of St. Louis, the first wave of our force was surprised by an encounter of enemy fire. As they descended and entered the atmosphere, the landing shuttles were forced to take evasive maneuvers, as dozens of missiles flew up from the surface and guided their way towards each vehicle. This had not been expected, as such weaponry was vastly different from what we had encountered 
when our forces first landed 15 months ago. Due to these missiles, we had lost 18 out of the 100 landing shuttles that took part in the first wave. However, the missiles were not the only surprise that awaited us that day, as our forces soon encountered human ground forces. Expecting to fight the same weak armored vehicles and vulnerable infantry, our soldiers were shocked to see streaks of plasma fire erupting from positions ahead of them. At first, some of our units thought that they were encountering friendly fire. However, it soon dawned on our soldiers that the humans were now using plasma rifles and field guns. Now engaging an enemy with equal weaponry, our soldiers struggled to advance as they began to take on heavy casualties. As the fighting continued, and as the human resistance stiffened due to the arrival of reinforcements, our forces were then made aware of the humans were not only using plasma weapons, but they also had improved armor vehicles that our own weaponry had difficulty disabling. Our anti-armored vehicle guided missiles, which had the ability to penetrate the armor of our own armored vehicles, were unable to do the same against the human armored vehicles. Reports from the survivors of the battle later stated that the humans seemed to have added some sort of explosive armor on the tanks that reduced the damage brought on by our missiles. When it became clear that the landing zone was not clear, we were forced to make a devastating decision of withdrawing the subsequent waves. Because of this, the first wave that was already on the ground was left alone without support and eventually killed or captured. Only a few hundred wounded who were placed on shuttles conducting casualty evacuation operations managed to evade such a fate. It soon became clear to us what had happened. The weapons stolen all those months ago had been studied and replicated by the humans. We were first amazed at how fast they were able to copy our equipment and place their version into full production. However, we then felt scared and wondered how many such weapons the humans possessed at the time. Was it only the armies of the United States that were equipped with them? Or were there other armies also armed with the new equipment? They didn't take long for us to know the answer. Six months after the failed invasion of St. Louis, our occupation forces garrisoning in the conquered homeland of the Soviet Union began encountering uprisings. It was then reported that the humans who had risen to fight the occupation force were armed with the same plasma rifles used by the soldiers of the United States. We would later learn that the humans had made use of cargo ships to transport the weapons through the sea that we thought was too cold for watercraft to safely sail on. Once more, our underestimation of the power of watercraft had resulted in a disaster. The next year had our forces on the defensive, as we fortified our gains in Europe, while trying to subdue the rebels in the conquered Soviet Union. However, the fight in the East was a losing battle. Although only equipped with plasma rifles, the number of humans they had slowly thinned our garrison until we were forced to withdraw and reunite them with the main force in Europe. After the loss of the conquered territory of the Soviet Union, our forces began to prepare for the multi-front attack that was expected to come. For five months, we waited and prepared, slowly thinking that what we had done was more than adequate to fight off what the humans had for us. However, despite our preparations, the resulting human offensive was beyond that of which we imagined. They first attacked us in the east, with the re-established Soviet Union attacking our defenses line on Poland. 
Although the humans in this front were still mainly equipped with plasma rifles, they were now beginning to also field a small number of armored vehicles equipped with plasma field guns. However, their tactics were still primitive, as they rushed in large waves without proper coordination. Because of this, we were able to hold them off for a month. Meanwhile, in the West, the combined forces of the United States, Great Britain and France concentrated on an assault on the coast of France. Once more, the battleships played a key role for the humans. However, these battleships were no longer the same vessels that we had first fought three years ago. Equipped with large-caliber plasma artillery, their cannons were much more powerful and had longer range than the ones that they had used previously. Because of this, they nearly annihilated the defenses that we built along the coastline. After the battleship had done their job, the main invasion force of armored vehicles and infantry landed, engaging our weakened forces. We were forced to fall back from the coast as the plasma rounds the battleships hurled bombarded our forces all along the way. Realizing that we were being pushed hard on two fronts and knowing that we stood no chance against the human offensive, we slowly began to withdraw our forces deeper and deeper into Central Europe, where we hoped to start evacuating them back into the orbiting fleet around Earth. What followed next was a month of desperate fighting, as our front line slowly shrunk while we evacuated more and more soldiers and equipment. Despite the intense human effort, we were somehow holding the line and keeping our evacuation zone clear from the new missile armed jet fighters aircraft that the humans were beginning to deploy in large numbers. However, what the humans threw at us next caught us by surprise once more. I guess it was foolish of us to think that the humans could not have thought of something else new for this war. From orbit we detected an atomic explosion. This was followed by another and another and another. We found these explosions odd, as they seemed to be occurring on the ocean the humans called the Pacific. Keeping track of these atomic explosions, we watched as it got higher and higher into the air. As the atomic explosions got closer to space, one of our starships focused its optical equipment at the bursts of atomic explosions and saw something that frightened all of us. Riding the stream of atomic fire was a large steel battleship. No, it did not look like the waterborne vessels the humans successfully fought us with, but these were no doubt in my mind what I saw was a battleship, shaped like one of these primitive bullets the humans had previously used. This battleship had some kind of pusher plates on its stern, which absorbed the atomic explosions from the bombs it dropped. Through the very barbaric method, the battleship managed to propel itself into orbit, as it exited the atmosphere and faced towards our fleet of starships, various large panels began to open from its hull to reveal turrets similar to the ones the waterborne battleships had. At that moment, as imminent doom got closer and closer, the order to jump into hyperspace was given. And without hesitation, without even thinking of the soldiers that were still on the surface and fighting a desperate battle in Europe, me and the other starship commanders immediately got our spacecraft away from danger. However, not all of us made it out of the human system. We originally had a hundred starships with us, but after exiting hyperspace, it was noted that there were only 98 starships who were with the fleet. We aren't sure what happened to the missing two, 
but it is speculated by many that they got hit and were disabled by approaching human battleship. That thought scares me the most. Those two starships contain powerful weaponry and advanced hyperspace drives. Not only that, its computers had star charts that pointed out every star system occupied by our race. If the humans manage to recover these things, then there is no telling what they might do. Invading Earth was a mistake, because now we have angered the humans. If anyone in the galactic community has any pity on us, please help my race, because I don't believe we would survive if the humans come. Captain Ad Heaven, commander of the transport starship Lightbringer during the invasion of Earth. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barkey, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Lord Azrakul, and Arcadian. Tales from Outer Space 1638. Greetings ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Outer Space. Hope you enjoy. Red Fleet. Written by you sure I'm not a robot. The shovel was a wretched thing. Rescued from the debris of my once proud house. It served me in its last moments, breaking the soft soil of my once beloved home. Now, a desolate waste, filled only with pain and burning. I wielded the shovel like a weapon that it wasn't, and I struck the soil as if it was the enemy that had defeated us. I laid my hopes into our friendly ground with trembling and bleeding hands, and covered them in broken flowers from our shattered garden. I snapped the handle so that it would never dig again and stumbled out to whatever future was left to me. I brought only a knife, the final answer to a question we had never asked. The council was convened in haste, the members bleary-eyed and shocked by the events now playing out in their far-flung worlds. The first asked the obvious question, Who? Who is doing this? The uniformed officer raised a limb. We are. Those were our ships, our troops. Our entire machinery of war has been taken by some force. And it is killing our own people. We are betrayed. I drank from the bloodied stream, indifferent to some future illness. The contrails of our once beloved fleet cut across the sky. A map of sudden death that they had dropped on us. A fading scar on that gentle sky. Then I heard the voices, soft noises from someone trying to be discreet. Sir, all targets have been achieved. I am moving to the next quadrant. There was a pause as whoever was speaking listened and mumbled in response. Yes, sir, moving now. ETA three hours, depending on resistance. Not that I expect much, not from this bunch of farmers. I had been a farmer until they had burned it all down. A grower of things, a provider for all a guardian of my land. I grew angry at this fool that thinks that I am soft, that the ever-war with the soil and the sky should be so disrespected. My mate and I had built something beautiful, and this fool thought that we would chaff. I laid my pack on the ground and drew my knife, a trusted tool that had never tasted living blood. XCC picked up from first rumors of trouble when border satellite reported from space of the Exton amalgamation was refusing entry to all ships. 
Little attention was paid until an irate mining ship reported that they were being refused permission to leave. In an entirely predictable outcome, the ship had trashed the satellite and left anyway. The engineer reported that some sort of civil war had broken out and that someone needed to get the feck out here and kick some rear. Bastards are slaughtering the civilians. I had dealt with death many times in the fall. A fact that should have chilled this mad fool's belief that farmers were soft. He looked young. Even now, with blood faltering from his neck, he looked like a sleeping child. I had been hardened by years, my field. I had wept over killing a beloved animal, but it had never stayed my hand, and this was no different. I held him as he died, as the wound given by my thirsty knife drained him of life. I was not cruel, and I had struck well and deep. It was soon over, and my few tears mingled with his blood as I whispered passing words to him. May he rest and softer for them. Then I gathered his weapons and reclaimed my pack. XCC called for Fleet. Fleet called for the AI Alliance, and they talked to everyone. Within an hour, a grim picture of opportunistic betrayal and a rampant murder was the focus of humanity. The director watched as his staff got a little older, a little grayer. All right, declare the system of the accident a disaster area. Pull our people out. Get diplomats in there right now. Send them in battleships. Fleet, I need you ready to take a whole fucking mess down. If they can't fly, they can't blow up their own cities. Intel, I need you to track and trace this mess. Find out who I'm supposed to talk to. Ask the Red Fleet to move with my compliments and tell them that we will pick up the bill. The polished wheels of mankind spun up, determined that those that could be saved would be no life taken freely, no death inflicted without consequence. Humanity stood with the ghosts of its failure, watching and trying to be better. The Red Fleet was a curious thing. At once heavily funded by humans, but designed for everyone else. It was a bizarre offshoot of the library project, and indeed shared some of the same ideals. The Red Crescent, Red Cross, and the Red Pie had found themselves handed problems with all types of Xena life, and had bound it together to exchange information. Then personnel. Then they were handed the charter and the budget and told to carry on. They were given retired fleet ships, as a matter of course, and they were sponsored by anyone that needed to save their reputation. It had come as something of a shock to a collection of people that had just wanted to help when they became a political and logistical force in the galaxy. And between themselves, they referred to themselves as disasters are us. This practiced fleet began to converge on the disaster area. The weapons were in sad state. I took them apart and gave them a sort of attention that they deserved, a deep clean, and with a whispered apology. A young man that lay cooling on the dirt was obviously remiss in looking after his tools. I searched him for ammunition and took what he had. I left him with my knife in his hand so that he wouldn't face the demons without a weapon. His comms chattered at me, familiar and local voices calling death on me and mine. My new long gun would meet them on the road, and the sun would fall. Are they dead? As it had fallen on mine.
This is the Human Rescue and Recovery Fleet. We are responding to a declared disaster in your territories, and we need data. The Xeno satellite sat there, being stupid, until a canned voice stated, No ships are permitted. Please apply to your local consul for a visa. The director for the Red Fleet shook her head. Okay, tell our engineers not to punch that piece of crap out of space, or hand its broken shots to Intel. I expect a report about nothing in an hour. We move to the first target now. She looked at her notes. A farming world with 53 million inhabitants and a 3% attrition rate. Crap. That was a lot of bonnies. She hit the comms. We're going into ongoing war. We know nothing yet, so gear up. She paused for a moment and then steeled herself to continue. This is a bloody mess. Civil wars mean you can't trust anyone. Get on the ground and save what we can. May Danu preserve us. The tree was old, well-grown, and often cropped. My neighbor used to talk to them as he worked. He called it honoring them. He had been alone too long since his mate had passed, but it had seemed to work. I found a few words and asked it to take my tired weight as I crawled up into the cover. Once I had settled in, I had a perfect view of the bridge and the chattering voices from comms told me that it wouldn't be long. I broke open a few supplies my drained mind had thought to grab. My child's lunchbox, ready for a school day. That would never happen, in a school that was now burning. I put that aside, preferring to die today than open it. The long gun felt warm in my arms, and I settled in with some dry biscuits. The Red Fleet drew closer as the director read a report that had never been written. She dropped it softly on her desk and leaned back. Fuck! She pushed a call through to Fleet that was, as usual, hanging about like an unwanted suitor, waiting for the magic words that would somehow make it better. Barbara, get your crap together. We are under fire and need Miltech. Help. The Admiral was calling out orders to move in seconds. Of course he was. They had worked it out years beforehand, and then he put the call on private. Kathy! Much as I appreciate the invitation, please tell me you didn't start a war. Is someone actually shooting at you? I mean, uh, I've been tempted. The director snorted. <laughs> Bob, would I lie to you? The Admiral smiled at that. Kathy, you always have. I'd be lost if that changed. You good? I'll get the fleet on the ground as soon as I can. The director began sending out her mapping and AI analysis. Well, one of the satellites was rather rude to me, so that's practically an act of war. Honestly, the crap that they're doing to each other right now, I uh, don't think they'll notice us. I knew the first vehicle, a battering fool from the disciplined guards, drunks and tree feckers, the lot of them. I took a deep breath while the chattering continued on the comms. The sights weren't much on the long gun, but they would do. I sent the type ball of plasma right through him, his stupid voice and his idiot friends. The fireball spun out, hurling the fence and landing upside down and the river running below the road. I could hear the steam hissing from the wreckage, but no one escaped. Ha! Feck you! You murdering bastards! I reloaded my gun and made myself comfortable. They wouldn't be long. Humanity never invaded a world. They carried out rescue missions, peacekeeping or police actions. They fixed whatever it was that they thought was broken, bought souvenirs, and went home. 
That didn't mean the 9,000 heavily suited Green Marines landing was always going to be a good day for you. The Admiral had been very clear on his orders. Now you want their leadership under our guns. Next fucker that orders a massacre gets nailed to a door. Intel is taking control of their medium. Shoot anything that won't sit down. Free fire on anyone that thinks that I have the time or the patience to watch them shoot up civilians. I woke up at the start. I hadn't even planned to sleep, but my body still had demands, still insisted on life. I rubbed my eyes and heard a faint noises that must have awoken me. Heavy trucks on the road. More of these misbegotten tree feckers. I spent a moment whispering the passing words to myself, since it was unlikely these bastards would do me the courtesy. I shielded myself behind the leaves to confuse their targeting algorithm and waited. Soon, this would be over, and I would answer for all, but I wanted company on my road. I took a deep breath. Green landed first, and they moved quickly to secure their areas. The landing craft swiftly punched themselves into the ground, nanite builders turning them into armories and fortresses. After some short, sharp disputes, they declared their areas clear. Red landed next, their craft becoming aid centers and hospitals. The staff ignored anyone with a gun with a palpable contempt for those still waving weapons around. They began clearing the cities and extinguishing the fires. Anyone that might have disagreed was met by a greedy with poor social skills and heavy weaponry. The Admiral looked at the assembled leadership, conceited, overbearing idiots that were happy to spend everyone's blood on infantile dreams. It was like being at home. He stepped up to the podium. You are all going to play nice, or I will kill you. Our intel and Diplo are putting together a plan, and then you are going to read it, sign it, and smile and wave. If you don't, I will personally turn this place into a mining world. I have no idea what you are fighting about, not my job, but the next one of you that picks up a weapon dies. And the next one of you that orders weapons used gets to stand in front of mine. He leaned forward. My guns are bigger. And I know where you live. I had never been a soldier. I had never even considered it. But now I wondered who they'd allow. I was out of ammunition, so I walked carefully towards the wreckage of the three vehicles that had tried to take the bridge. My bridge. The first one was still burning too hot to approach. Whatever I had set on fire was still burning. The second looked more promising. A delivery truck that had slammed into the fence and stalled. I'd obviously shot better than I thought since the driver was dead at the wheel. Feck you and all of you were trying to do. I checked the back and it was full of supplies, all for an army of one. I grabbed a handful of supplies and turned to the latest edition. Rich, expensive, currently smoldering, it had raced right through my final shot. Red 73 was having a bad day. Well... Everyone was having a bad day, but this one merited a call-in. Red 73, I have a roadblock, no signal, no ID. If I had to guess, I'd say this is a partisan action. Permission to clear, I have customers waiting. Red Fleet was known for the logistics for a reason. Red 73, greenies are on the way. Mission is full clear, at your discretion. Don't make Mama Bear mad. He grinned at that. 73, moving out. Bury me deep if I fix this up. Maybe she won't find me. Negative 73. She took the hells years ago. Now they just heat her pool. Good luck.
I pulled open the door, stiff and hot as it was. Then I met the eyes of the chief of the disciplinary garrison for the district and found myself grinning. I'd seen him before, sealed into his bubble of heavily armored thugs. His voice, his orders, had been what had wiped out my home, and here he was, sitting and panting like a child in front of me. My shot had obviously taken out the driver, but he had been injured in the crash. I raised my long gun and enjoyed the fear in his eyes. Stop! I swung around towards the sound and stopped. It was just too bizarre. A creature in a red suit. It only had four limbs. I pointed my weapon and prepared to fire. But this wasn't one of them. I was not a killer of innocents. What are you? What do you want? The red-suited creature raised its two forelimbs to show that it held no weapons, so I lowered mine, keeping my finger on the trigger. Its voice was obviously a translator, so is Zeno. I'd never met one before. It spoke. I'm a human from the rescue fleet. We've taken control until this mess is sorted out. I'm in medical recovery, and this bridge is needed. There are four villages burning behind you. I would have laughed except for the pain. You think I don't know? I buried my dead there when this bastard... I turned to the vehicle. This bastard called in an airstrike and killed my family. I had heard of humans, tinkerers, fixers of things. I suddenly knew what I wanted to do. I raised my gun. Turn around and count to 20. Then you can have the bridge. You can have this whole fucking world. But I want 20 seconds. Or I shoot now. I saw him realize what I meant. I saw him lower his hands and almost reach out to me. I raised my gun a little, and he seemed to fold into himself. Y you don't need to do this. I can get you justice. We are here to help. How sweet. Turn around and tell yourself that you were a minute too late. The chief of the flying perverts that had killed us all had heard every word. I didn't waste time and simply shot him, his face disappearing into mist. Then I had a sudden thought. Human! In my pack is a box. Bury it with me. It was for my daughter for a school this morning. She went ahead of me, and uh, she should be getting hungry soon. I didn't hesitate. I didn't feel a thing as I brought up the gun to my head. Red 7-3 reporting that the road is open, cleared to advance. I just, uh, have a little housekeeping to do. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Lord Azrakul, and Arcadian. Tales from Outer Space 1639. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales, Tales from, from Outer, Outer Space. Space. Hope you enjoy. Story number one. Humans tricked a rock to think. Written by Random3x. Quixar looked over the documents handed to him regarding the newly discovered species that identified itself as humans. They had met with the ambassadors from the Shell, and a general exchange of information had been agreed to. Nothing too groundbreaking so far. The Shell had encountered many other species and been able to create bonds that lasted even to this day. The problem, though, was that he had been given pages upon pages of gobbledygook. These are human-specific script, Quesgar asked his assistant. Hard to say, sir, his assistant started. Our ambassador spoke to them having a decent ability to convey information in person. He quickly added, 
Hmm. Quixar tapped his chin in thought. Perhaps they are a species with many languages, like the Bastari, he pondered aloud. Maybe it would be quicker to speak to a human directly. They can clear up any misunderstanding and maybe even offer a way to translate what they have provided. His assistant offered. Yes, um, uh, that seems to be the best option. Hopefully they didn't send us uh, indecipherable nonsense in bad faith. Quixar said, nodding to his assistant. Sir? The assistant tilted his head in confusion. Well, I mean, they may have purposefully sent us. He gestured to the documents covered in the lines and O's to occupy us while we skulk away with our kindly offered clear information. Quixar finished explaining. Ah, I, I see. If they did do that, it would be rather devious, but I shall send a communique right away, sir. The assistant gave a quick bow before rushing out of the office. Quixar could only watch the man as he wondered what the response would be. He didn't need to wait long for a response. Within the day, a human representative had arrived and was all smiles. A pleasure to meet you, Sir Quixar. My name is Captain Klein. He bobbed his head in a gesture of respect. Well met, Sir Klein. We were hoping that you could aid us with these. Quixar gestured to what was becoming a truly mountainous pile of documents. We requested your assistance as the information you provided to us is in a form that we cannot comprehend. Quixar explained. Nod, the information we received from you is being translated by our computers already. Klein explained with a confused expression. Calmly walking over, he looked over the pages piled up. Quixar closely observed the human's expressions. He was sure the human would say it was a simple script, and they would offer some way to translate it. Only... he didn't. Quixar watched the man's brow furrow as he was bewildered. That's odd, he muttered. Pardon, Sir Klein, Quixar asked. Well, I can't make head nor tails of this, he answered. I saw what we sent, and it wasn't this. So it is indecipherable? Quixar asked. Well, no. It can be deciphered. I'm just wondering why it's all in binary. He asked aloud. Binary? Quixar repeated. Yes, ones and zeros. I'm not much of a computer guy myself, but uh, it's how our computers convey information. He explained. Ah, so it is a language unique to your computers. Owls probably didn't know what to translate it as, so they provided the base version. Quixar said, snapping his fingers at the realization. Oh, uh, your computers don't use binary. I'm sure our techies would love to look at them. Might be able to install a way for it to understand binary. Klein offered with a smile. I install, Quixar repeated, confused. Do they have the necessary genetic growth chemicals to do such a thing? Quixar asked. Gen no, uh, sorry, I I'm confused. Why would we need genetic what's-its to install a way to read binary? Klein asked. Well, all computers are organic. Uh, we make large synthetic thinking beings that do all the calculations and processing we need, Quixar explained. It should be in the information we provided you, he added, tilting his head in confusion. Well, Klein took a step back in surprise. Organic computers, he muttered to himself. No wonder why yours only spat out ones and zeros. He continued muttering. Sir Klein, is everything okay? Quixar asked, concerned for his representative's well-being. Yes, uh, I'm fine. It's just it's just a bit of a culture shock. You, you, you see, Quixar, Quixar, we don't use organic computers, Klein explained. 
But we have seen the machines you control. They could only be controlled by a high-grade organic computer. Quixar exclaimed in surprise. Well, uh, we use silicon, I think. Klein answered unsurely. As I said, I am not a tacky, so not 100% on that. You use... You, you, you use inorganic computers? Quixar asked, even more shocked than Klein had been. Such a thing is deemed impossible. Only that which is living can deign to think. Well, um, I have a friend that put it like this. Humans went out and tricked the rock into thinking, Klein explained. Quixar was speechless. He was aware these humans were a different sort from the what they had met thus far. But to be able to make a thinking machine out of rocks was beyond absurd. But the proof was already in front of him. The only thing that he could think to do at this moment was laugh. End of story. Story number two. Robotic Warfare, written by Incredibilis Ho. As I sit here and recall my thoughts of these past three years, we have fought a battle that was already doomed from the very start. See, the world of Esric Fall is a fertile and habitable world for both of us, Hutate and humanity. We Hutate obviously have superior military and economic strength. As such, the world is to be ours. That is how nature works. That is how society works. The humans disagree. According to them, because they found it first, it should be theirs. Besides, this reasoning being problematic, it wasn't really troubling to us. We just flex our military muscles and capture the world via force. And so I and the 15th, 18th and 13th land divisions and the 7th fleet were sent to capture the world. An easy enough task, the humans are weak both individually and on a larger scale. Or so we thought. The first assault went relatively well, capturing the world within a few weeks and hunting down the last remnants of human forces. Until then, all they had for forces were a few security guards, meant to accompany the scientists who were investigating the planets. However, the humans and their fondness for science wouldn't aid them in war. Or so we thought. See, our naval contingent was caught off guard, and a few human transport ships managed to land onto the planet. No big deal. Our fleet managed to destroy the rest. Millions of lives lost. However... For the first time in this entire invasion, something didn't go to plan. See, Urzik 4 is a tropical world. The forest is dense and wet. As such, all organics, with the exception of those who evolved to deal with the humanity in such environments, are usually uncomfortable. However, these forces who have landed onto the planet didn't seem uncomfortable at all. The humans being quite fond of their ranged weaponry, Use snipers to attempt to take down our leadership. With some success. However, we did not manage to locate or even wound any of the snipers. When we tried to find them using normal means of tracking down organics, such as heat, we failed. Of course, there were technologies to prevent soldiers being found using normal means. We wrote it off as them being elites, trained to not be found and equipped with the best possible equipment. Then, we found them on a field of battle. A glorious battle! Our race's affection for battle was second to none, and we were good at it too. 
The humans were clad in layer after layer of armor. Most of us were mown down by an almost robotic precision. We suffered a horrendous amount of casualties. The few humans we did manage to take down were via explosives. But we continued fighting, even with our force being decimated. However, morale was getting lower and lower by the day. On the home front, some inferior races who were subjugated were getting courageous after seeing us lose. Of course, other military forces managed to subdue these rebellious outbursts. And so, we marched on, their snipers picking us off from afar, and any skirmishes we did have with them were fought on their terms. Our victories were either incredibly pyric, or we were defeated outright. They kept losing ground, they kept retreating, we kept advancing. However, worlds are round, then they had nothing to protect, nothing to lose, they could retreat. Morale kept dropping, one more of these victories or another defeat, and they'd start mutiny. This was an intangible enemy which one could defeat and claim victory over. These things came out of the dark and decimated our lines before disappearing into the jungle. We couldn't track them, we couldn't even try and shoot back. We were chasing ghosts. However, we were Apex predators by nature. We would be victorious. As such, our commander devised a plan, a trap. We would lure them into a trap. Two battalions of infantry would appear to be cut off and lagging behind. The ghosts would strike and try to decimate them. But the two battalions would be reinforced by the 13th and 18th divisions. Or uh, what was left of them. It worked for the first time in this entire damned war. We managed to capture one of them. We opened the tin can the human was hiding inside, only to find out that there was no human. We'd been fighting machines, walls of iron and steel. At this revelation, a large part of the 13th Division rebelled, aided by a small part by the 15th. And now I sit here, one of the few loyal remaining soldiers of the expedition sent into the slaughterhouse. Their fondness for technology, their reverence for life, most certainly does have its place in war. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Lord Azrakal, and Arcadian. Tales from Outer Space 1640. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales, Tales from, from Outer, Outer Space. I hope you enjoy. Story number one, The Human Agenda, written by Jimmy Agent 007. Parlax was having difficulty with his class, trying to teach the assorted alien words that had been incorporated after every first contact was always difficult. But the newer set was the worst. Not that they were particularly complex or difficult to understand the meaning, but rather hard to convince anyone of their necessity. But... Uh, when would we ever use it? The student asked the one question. The young of every species seemed to ask the most things. Definitely, when dealing with humans, Parlax repeated. There is a reason the word ridiculous is synonymous with human and absurd. That's the other word on the list that I'm having trouble with, another stated. You all are. Look. If I had a human handy to talk to you, I think that you would understand it better in context. But, but trust me, you'll need these words. 
Humans have immigrated to every planet capable of supporting life in the galaxy. We should be so happy that we only need to learn a few of their words. Are you referring to how dangerous the humans are? Yes. They could have rampaged across the stars and conquered us all. Instead, they proved quite friendly. And once we figured out the galactic society could hardly pose a threat to them if we tried. He paused before emphasizing the next word. Ridiculously so. I'm still not sure how that fits, sir. He sighed. Before the humans let their people travel about, they warned us about their quirks. A fair and practical procedure for all races. Their crime and safety advice essentially ended crime galaxy-wide. Protocols made to keep humans in line aren't going to be circumvented or violated by any of us. Medicine and surgical techniques are saving lives by the millions since humans practice medicine on themselves and on every other animal on their planet they could. Everyone knew someone whose life had been saved by human medicine. You see, the human homeworld was so dangerous that the only way their humans were able to survive was to support each other. They aren't a hive, but if a predator attacked one, they'd all gang up and kill it. Because it would kill more if they didn't. They bond so intensely that they would be willing to risk their lives in such a confrontation. It all fed into the quest to survive. Yes, their biology is terrifying. It's what allowed them to survive the systemic stress test of every conceivable problem a civilization could have. Again, the students nodded. Every galactic emergency had been solved by humans showing up with already proven techniques, needing only minimal adaptation. A rogue planetoid causing flooding as it passed by a world. Humans showed up to build dams and dikes to protect the cities. A swarm of Hyvadian race gone rogue. Napalm. Lots and lots of napalm. Too much ice? You better believe humans knew how to melt it. Too little? They figured out the problem as well. Almost too late. So humans are generally just happy to make friends and be helpful. Most of the time. They forget to even ask for any form of repayment. Simply that we pay it forward and help others when we can. Life in the galaxy has been so safe that there hasn't been a need for Galactic Congress to have a meeting in many cycles. They are only having one this week simply because they hit a maximum duration between meetings. I think our ambassador this time is actually a human himself. There were some murmurs before students spoke up. I, uh, thought that the, the Mulax ambassador was the human one. No, it's the Frush ambassador. Another student stood up. Soon, every race in his class insisted that their species ambassador was actually a human, and the professor was getting concerned. Are you all pointing out that all of our respective ambassadors are just humans who immigrated in our worlds? He quickly did a search for the ambassadors of the Galactic Congress. Sir, uh, are you alright? The concerned student asked. Well, this is just fucking ridiculous, Parlax uttered. Lamenting that he would now have to teach the students a word that he was hoping to avoid, now that he used it as an intensifier. Meanwhile, at the Galactic Congress. Well, uh, this is awkward, the human ambassador uttered as he took his seat and realized why the room was so quiet. The chairman of the Congress sat at the head of the room, and a Dromedon's explorer who flung his sleeper ship with the Milky Way galaxy just to see what was there was happy to find intelligent life and settled nicely into his role since he had no invested bias towards any of the races living there. 
He was also the only non-human in the room meant to represent the 745 races in the galaxy. The humans seemed to be as confused as he was. Everyone was simply looking around to see if there really was no alien ambassadors. It slowly dawned on them that by being so prolific in their travels and social aptitudes, humans simply found themselves in unintentional control of the Galactic Congress. Everyone, a woman representing the Doralus shouted, you know what that means, right? She jumped onto her table to make grand gestures with her hands. We can rule everything, we can take control, and we can pass any resolutions. Humans have the ultimate power in the galaxy, and it's our chance to see our vision of the galaxy become a reality. Cheers rose up from the humans in the room, and the chairman was nervously wondering what the humans would do. The humans had seemed so friendly as long as he had known them. Was it all an act? What was their agenda? Back in the classroom, Parlax saw the proclamation that had just come down from the Galactic Congress. He was stunned. He couldn't even speak. He was only shaken from his stupor by a confused student asking what literally every alien in the galaxy was now asking themselves. What is Taco Tuesday? And why is it now a galactic holiday? End of story. First contact, written by traumatized Waffle. Target sighted. It's, uh, it's hunched over something. Yak spoke quietly into his cranial mounted communicator. He died in his grip on his emulator. His three eyes locked on the creature several feet from him. He'd been following it ever since it had crawled out of the wreckage of an alien starship that had crashed several days ago. His chest tightened as he momentarily saw the metallic gleam of a blade in one of the creature's hands. He shoved his sphere aside and quietly maneuvered around the creature, finally getting a look at what it was doing. A dead mud crawler lay before the creature, and it was using a knife to remove the skin and chunks of meat. Yuck was appalled. For what reason was the creature committing such a display of pointless barbarity? He continued watching as the creature placed the chunks of meat on the hide, wrapping it and securing it shut. The creature suddenly stopped and turned in Yuck's direction, eyeing him squarely. It raised one of its appendages and pointed at him, saying something in what Yek assumed to be its native tongue. I am compromised. The creature has seen me. Please advise. Yek spoke shakily into his communicator. Roger, does the creature show any sign of hostility? Damned the voice of his commander. The creature was currently standing in the same spot, gesturing with one of its appendages and continuing to speak. No, sir. I believe it's trying to communicate with me. Yek responded. Acknowledged. Uh, approach the creature carefully, and don't show any hostility unless you feel threatened. His commander ordered. Yek was silent for a moment. You got that, Lancer Yek? He spoke again. Yes, sir, Yek replied. He carefully stowed his emulator and began to slowly approach the creature. His hands held up to his chest level. The creature seemed curious at his approach, as Yek was about half the distance to the creature. The creature slipped a blade it held into a loop of fabric at its waist and began advancing towards Yak. Yak stopped for a beat, worried for a moment. However, he continued his advance after taking note that the creature had stowed its weapon as well. They both stopped with a distance of only a couple feet separating them and stared at one another. Yak noticed the creature, unlike him, had two small eyes instead of three large ones. The creature looked Yak up and down, 
before extending his hand slowly towards Yek. Yek recoiled, fearing the creature was about to attack. After a moment, he noticed that the creature had stopped, holding its hand out towards Yek. Yek was unsure what the creature was trying to convey. He slowly held one of his hands out, and the creature wasted no time gently grabbing it and shaking it. The creature's mouth spread wide, showing its teeth, and it began to bounce up and down excitedly. The creature stopped bouncing and held both its hands out before gesturing to itself. Human! Who? Man! It spoke, before then pointing towards Yak and cocking its head to the side. Yak was lost for a moment, and he realized that human was likely the name of the creature's species, and must now be inquiring as to what he was. Yak mimicked the human gesture. Drakna! Drakna! He spoke slowly, unsure if the creature would comprehend. The human's face lit up. He pointed towards Yak again. Drakna! Human! Friends! The human spoke. Yek wasn't sure what the human was trying to say exactly, but he had a feeling. He held his hand out again, and the human excitedly grabbed it and shook it again. Come on, Yek spoke into his communicator. What is it, Lancer Yek? Came the voice of his commander. I think, uh... I, I think I just made first contact with the human. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Lord Azrakul, and Arcadian. Tales from Outer Space 1641. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales, Tales from, from Outer, Outer Space. I hope you enjoy. One Last Fetch. Written by JCB112. It all started out with a single treat. A word which we would eventually learn to mean the grace of the gods. This was their first gift of the divine. This small, unassuming rectangular shape was so out of place amongst the creatures, the foliage, and the flora of the forest that it had no true equivalent in our world. Indeed, this is what clued us into the nature of these beings. Should their otherworldly figures not serve as proof enough of their divinity? These beings, who walked on two legs instead of four, who stood higher than any amongst our pack, who strode across the land effortlessly in loud rumbling beasts of unimaginable power, who summoned instant death through thunderous lightning to those that would dare tarnish, let alone harm their divinity, had chosen us as their acolytes, as their bestest boys as they stay in their tongue. Many in the forest did not see these beings, these two legs, as they would so blasphemously call them, as anything but a strange new oddity. But that was because they were not chosen. That's because they had yet to have felt what we have felt, and what I had felt when serving the masters. Just approaching them changes their disposition, whilst the birds and the lizard elicit no response or even a negative one, if aggressive enough. We, on the other hand, seemed to be the only ones to give pause to whatever rituals or activities they were preoccupied with. Some greet us with but a glance, some bearing their fangs to assert their position in this overpack hierarchy, some even gesturing towards us wildly. Yet, the bestest ones were the ones who greeted us with sensations previously completely unknown. 
These headpads, as they refer to them. It was a simple gesture, one that involved the use of their free appendage to reach for our heads, to move their paws softly or vigorously atop the space between our two pointy ears. This was a second gift of the divine. Yet, while we followed them everywhere they went, watched as they performed ritual after ritual, stared longingly at them through the clear ice that adorned their large warren beasts as they slept and ate, we still did not come any closer to the truth of their nature. In truth, we did not know what it was that they were doing in our forests, nor did we know why they had chosen to perform these strange rituals amongst the trees, deep in the caves, and even above the clouds, if those birds could be trusted with this fact. But what we did know was that they were benevolent. They showered us with treats, gave us many, many headbats, bed us when seasons bore us few hunts, sheltered us in warrens built to keep out the elements. And strangest of all, they loved us. It is difficult to describe this to any other being. As pack creatures, we have innate instincts for these sorts of things. Yet, if I were to describe it, it was akin to a bond, an invisible, unbreakable bridge between two or more of your own kind. Yet, these beings of divinity, they saw these bonds without us, even explaining it to them, and... Instead of simply accepting this as another fact of life, they decided to bond with us. Each member of our pack was given what the Divine called a name. It was a way of referring to an individual of our kind in a way that isn't limited to pheromones and scents. It was clear the Divine did not have to stoop down to such levels, so they gave us these monikers that they saw fitting of our stations. Indeed, it was at this point that we learned the Divine's names as well. Humans. This was the third gift of the humans. And my gift was the name given to me by my Divine Patron. The name was Scruffles. I eventually learned my human's name. Her name was Sarah. She seemed to be one of the humans' few offspring, unlike our own pack. It was clear that the humans had little interest in propagating their kind. It was perhaps because of their immortality, as prior generations of our pack have observed the divine arrival four to five generations ago without any of the original arrivals showing any signs of aging. The Sarah was the first of these divine pups to pack bond with us, and I was chosen to be her first. Whilst most of the pack were busy observing, waiting, or even protecting our humans from the dangers of the forest, me and Sarah's duties were significantly different. While most bonds were that of simple kinship, lacking much in the way of reciprocation save for the occasional head pat and treat, Sarah had introduced me to a new gift, a personal gift, that only we shared. None of the pack had even heard of this... Uh, Game, as Sarah would call it. It was a game called Fetch. This was the fourth gift of the Divine, and it was all mine. 
Sarah and I spent what felt like an eternity playing this game. It was a simple activity, one whereby my instincts of hunting were exercised constantly. She would throw me this object, this toy, and it would be my responsibility to run after it and return it to her. It sounds ridiculous, I know, but in the heat of the moment it just felt so... right. Like I was born for this game. We had changed through a lot of these toys over the years, but eventually landed on one that Sarah seemed happy enough with. It was once again nothing like anything seen in the forest. A perfectly consistent, round, flat disc-like object. It was the color of the sky. A color so rare that I could not fathom how these beings were able to imbue such a simple object with it. But it honestly made sense. The divine did descend from the heavens, after all. So they must have painted these toys with the color of the skies. That, or perhaps they were the ones who painted the skies themselves. The time we spent together were times that I would cherish forever. It was a time when the warmth of the forest was still bountiful. A time where the river still flowed untainted and unhampered. A time where prey was bountiful enough, and where the humans would feed us if it wasn't. It was a time where I spent countless months, years, with Sarah. She would talk to me in the human tongue that I had slowly learned to understand, and I knew if given enough time could potentially one day mimic. The first words I understood were my name and Sarah's name. Then it was the game called Fetch. Then it was all the different ways the week would play. She would say sit, and I would, well, <laughs> sit. She would say beg, and I would dangle up my two front paws in front of me before a treat was presented. She would say roll over, and this was where I experienced a new sensation. She called it belly rubs. This was the fifth gift of the humans. Yet... There was one more lesson I learned from her, one lesson that I still carry with me. She taught me the word stay, and the word follow. Stay meant that I would remain still, awaiting her return. Follow meant that I would track her, follow her wherever she went. And it was on that fateful day, early one morning, as I woke to yet another morning under the dull grey sky, that Sarah approached me, huffing and puffing, cheeks completely red. This was the first time I'd seen her like this. This was the first time I've seen any of the humans in such a state. She pointed to the skies, to the streams, to the forest, and spoke, but I could not understand. All I could understand were a few final words before a large divine being lifted her and took her away. Fetch! She dropped our toy and spoke a simple command. Follow. It has been years since the disappearance of the humans, and in those years I've started to grow old and weary. The elements have not been kind to me, nor has the hunger and consistent lack of water. Where my fur was once proud grey coat, healthy and thick, it is now ragged and shaggy, patches of it, torn off from a desperate attacks by larger white-furred bears that roamed around these northern regions. 
I traveled beyond my pack's territory, beyond the forests and even across the great mountains that we thought was the edge of our world. Many in my pack had called me insane for undertaking this fool's errand. They wished to reunite with the divine, wished to return to the days of old, yes, but they couldn't risk the pack. They couldn't risk taking us all along in the suicide run. So I decided to go alone. I had noticed the dying of the trees early on. I had noticed the tainting of the waters and the decline of the number of prey with each passing season. I knew better than to stay, and I knew I had a higher calling to answer to, even if it meant leaving the pack, even if it meant leaving the forest. I would follow, and I would return this toy to the little human, Sarah. Maybe this was what she was training me for. This was a divine premonition. Everything we did, from those long treks to the reinforcement of the fetch as a core part of our bond, was leading up to this long hike. Whenever my spirits threatened to give in, I would drop the toy that was almost always firmly wedged in my maw. I would look at it and see how it still shone in the few rays of sun that penetrated the now darkened skies. I could see my own reflection in it, my now almost unrecognizable disheveled state, a stark contrast to the frisbee that still remained almost completely untouched by the passing of time. In it, I could see the little human. In it, I could still remember the days when the headpats were plentiful and the treats were handed out freely. In it, I could still feel the pack pond, that love between a master and their loyal friend, their bestest friend. So I continued. I continued, even as the strong winds began to tear off what was left of the healthy patches of my fur. I continued, even as food was now practically non-existent in this part of the icy tundra. I continued, only based off the small green glow of the frisbee. What had been a curiosity was now my focus. I was convinced it glowed brighter as I approached Sarah. It had to. It couldn't just be my own imagination. I continued for as long as I could. Until, finally, my legs gave in and I could walk no further. I tried moving my legs. I honestly did. But they wouldn't move. I couldn't feel anything. This numbness would eventually spread further as I lay there in the snow. As I stared ahead at what seemed to be lights in the far distance. I knew it was impossible, though. It was night time, and light just didn't exist. Unless it was... Scruffles! I heard a voice in the far distance, and the low hum of the humans' great metal beasts. I did it! I was here, yet my eyes were heavy. And I just felt so incredibly tired. I held out for as long as I could, however. I held one eye open while another closed, panting, trying to feel something, anything, to avoid the encroaching darkness. I didn't know how long I'd been waiting. But what I saw in front of me wasn't the same Sarah from all those years ago.
This human was larger, taller, not as tall as the rest of the mature humans, no, but certainly taller than the pup that had bonded with me so long ago. Oh, God, it's... is that... Before she could continue, I was able to drop the frisbee from my maw, using the tip of my nose with the last few ounces of energy that I had left to nudge it closer towards my human. I did it. I followed, and I accomplished my goal. I got to play fetch one last time. Sarah looked out the window. The skies above the planet had finally cleared up for the first time in over twenty years. Coming back here was difficult. But it was what her whole life had been leading up to after the sudden departure from this world all those years ago. She stepped off the shuttle, walking for a good hundred or so meters before stopping cold in her tracks. It was there that she sought the small mound of rock sticking out against the nothingness of the cold, barren tundra. She knelt down next to it, her hands trembling, as she reached out to touch the frozen stones. Hey, buddy. She spoke to no one in particular. You missed me? There was no answer. I, uh, missed you. I... I missed you so much. Uh... I, I brought you something. I, I remember how much you love these silly little treats, sir. Uh, you know, they're really cheap, and I, I, I think you deserve better, but... Uh... She trailed off again, placing a small box of dog treats at the foot of the mound. She could feel tears forming but they crystallized and froze on her face as soon as they appeared. I, uh, I wish I could have done more for you. I, uh, I wish, uh, I wish I didn't have to leave you. I, uh, I wish for so many things. But we all know that wishes are just that. Wishes. She sat down on one of the larger rocks, placing both her hands against her masked face. But at least... You were happy in the little time we had together. She attempted to reason with herself, but it didn't work. But you know, I've tried, I, I've tried so hard. Her voice began to break, hitching between gasps, between each difficult breath. Ah, oh, after you died. No, 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 nothing was the same. I, I didn't, I didn't know what it meant to lose, too. She couldn't finish her thoughts, not before it became too unbearable. The weight against her chest, the heaviness in her gut, it was just all too much to bear. And she let it all out. But it's all better now. I I made sure that the pilot project would be here, on Aurelia. Your back is safe. Your forest is safe. Your cousins and nieces and nephews will go on to live long, happy lives. She forced out a smile, holding back the stream of tears that threatened to return. A sudden buzz against her chest alerted to a direct message, a call that she had to take. Uh, uh, I'm sorry to cut us a short here, but, uh, hey, I have a gift for you, a, b a bigger one, one that you deserve, one that I'll make sure to visit as much as I can. She stood up, walking towards the shuttle as another craft began to approach. She watched as a smaller craft unloaded the cargo atop the small pile of rocks, several robots unwrapping the crate to reveal the ten-foot granites and slate pedestal. 
atop of it was a furred lupine-like creature on all fours, standing atop proudly with a frisbee in its mouth. There was a small plaque at the bottom of the statue, a plaque which read, Here lies Scruffles, 2752-2759. He was smart, loyal, caring, and brave. May he be remembered for all of time as the bestest of boys. You are currently listening to Interstellar Telecommunications and Transmission Authority, broadcasting live from Earth. It is currently 12.01, the 21st of May, 2792. Here is what the afternoon headlines. At 9 a.m. United Nations Standard Time, the once controversial Ecosystem and Environmental Preservation Act was passed into law by the United Earth Parliament and the offices of the President and Chancellor of Greater Seoul. These acts, championed by the prominent environmentalist Professor Dr. Sarah Cyrillic, is set to radically alter Earth's involvement in the development and preservation of any unclaimed and uninhabited life-bearing worlds. In a press release immediately following the ratification of the EEPA acts, Dr. Sarah Cyrillic had this to say. It is imperative that we follow through with our now legal obligations. The passage of this act is but one victory in a long list of actions that we need to check off if we are to see its intents and goals to completion. Many critics point the act's strange financial overreaches, such as the procurement of 50,000 credits worth of funding for a vanity project on Aurelia, consisting of a statue and a plaque. Men. Of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Lord Azrakal, and Arcadian. Tales from Outer Space 1642. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales, Tales from, from Outer, Outer Space. I hope you enjoy. Humans are Scary. Inquisition. Written by Ace Zero. It started as a joke. A group of like-minded LARPers started a flotilla in human-controlled space. They called themselves the Holy Order of the Human Inquisition, or the Inquisition for short. No one, not even their fellow humans, took them seriously, as they didn't have any governing power, despite being armed in such a way to compete with the conventional military. The Terran Republic decided that despite their mannerisms and their armaments, they were never actually hurting anyone so they just let the Inquisition be. Then, the Fertilla eventually grew to the point where they could legally afford to own a number of unexplored and uninhabited planets in Terran space. So, they bought them. They bought a star system with several inhabited worlds and made sure to sign a permanent alliance with the Republic as a precautionary effort. There were no tensions between the two factions, and the alliance was put into place to ensure there never was. The worlds under the control of the Inquisition were all colonized, and their people, born and raised, to have the Inquisitor's mindset, so the next generation would behave in a similar way to their fathers and mothers. Then we, the Xenoxi, declared war on the humans. More specifically, we declared war in the Terran Republic. All the allied human nations declared war on us, but due to our unique method of warfare, we thought that we'd be safe from repercussion for a time. The Xenoxi have a unique way of fighting war. Our tactics are such that we have our great first strike capabilities, but we cannot defend our captured territories very well. Our ground defenses simply take too much time to set up, 
and a quick enemy can retake any captured planets with ease. Therefore, we avoid killing civilians on the planets we invade. Most races are thankful for this, and we found that the humans respected this greatly, but we did not do it for the altruistic reasons. The Xenoxy employ a weapon of war called the Mind Might. It is a nanopore injected into the captured individuals that travels through the bloodstream and into the brain. The mind of the species is animized and rewired from the inside out to feel subservience and loyalty to the High King of the Xenoxy. And through technicality, it is not a weapon banned by Galactic Concord. The Nanites then break themselves down into nutrients to be absorbed into the host's body, making it so that the meddling is undetectable. This weapon greatly influenced our standard strategy in warfare. We take a planet and occupy it, then we inject a portion of the population with mind mites, creating a resistance cell in the local population. If enough people are injected, then we are the rightful owners of the planet return. They will find that they aren't just fighting Xenoxy warriors, but their own people as well. Most societies would abandon the planet, not willing to attack others of their own kind. In fact, no other species in the galaxy has been able to counter this tactic. That all changed when a human ambassador had publicly accused the Kingdom of Xanox of using banned weapon on human civilians. We don't know if the Terrans discovered the Mind Mites were being used on humans, but it didn't matter. We never made it a secret that we used them, and the weapon wasn't banned by Concord Law. They were chastised by the Council and informed of this. We expected the ambassador to retreat with his proverbial tail between his legs afterwards, but he revealed that there was no such uncertain ruling in the Geneva Conventions, a set of laws for warfare that had been signed by most human nations, and some non-human ones, including the Keth. Upon further inspection, our legal analysts had determined that the Mind Mites were a convention violation, and their use was banned in war against the signatories. Everyone in the galaxy knew what this meant. The Xenoxy had broken the Geneva Convention, and that meant that the humans would commit to total war. But what could they really do? Our species, when given enough time and resources, could turn every planet we were stationed on into impervious fortresses. And we knew of no species willing to turn their guns on their own kind, especially when they were just being mind-controlled, as the human ambassador had put it. We were confident, despite breaking their precious conventions, that we would be able to weather their attempts to break us. No army had been able to stand up to us, and they would surely falter before turning their weapons against their own brainwashed citizens. Then, the Inquisition came. A massive fleet of Inquisition ships had shown up around one of the colony worlds we had taken. Our own attack fleet had retreated from the system, not willing to fight them when their own people would do it for us. We figured that we could pull back, wait a few cycles, and then return after the native humans drove them off. Nobody expected the colony just to go dark. Without explanation, we simply lost contact with our human collaborators of the colony. Unexpected, but not unheard of. Some individuals in species can spontaneously become resistant to the effect of the mind mites. Then we lost contact with another human cell. Then another. Soon enough, all of the human colony worlds we gained in the latest campaign had gone dark, with not a single human on our side responding to our calls. 
This unnerved our commanders. Had the humans found a way to detect individuals in which we used the mind mites, or had they found a way to remove their effects? Both were dismissed as impossible. Once the change had taken place, not a trace of the mind mites were left, and the changes themselves are no different from the variances in personality. So how come the humans we had used the mind mites on were disappearing? That answer would come as swiftly as it was horrifying. As we gathered for another push into human space, the Inquisition sent their fleet around the previously human planet of New Tennessee. Our fleet was caught off guard, and our captains were not trained to repel surprise attacks. Most of our ships fled, and the ones left that weren't destroyed landed on the planet below to assist with the ground defenses. Most of the human population on New Tennessee had already been converted with mind mites. Though a scan few remained, the Inquisition armies landed, and we prepared defenses. No one expected what came next. The armies of the Inquisition began firing on our positions, and we watched in shock as our human allies fell. Many of us were confused. Were these not humans, the same humans that had previously demonstrated that they weren't willing to kill civilians and hostages? The same humans that couldn't pull the trigger when their guns were aimed at brainwashed citizens. Most of our forces snapped out of their stupor and returned fire. Our weapons and human allies fought bravely, and while our humans had tactics that benefited us, they meant nothing to the humans of the Inquisition. Our armies were slaughtered wholesale with plasma weapons, flamethrowers, and large-caliber kinetic weapons firing at alarmingly high rates. Our armies in New Tennessee lay broken and defeated, but the slaughter did not stop there. The Inquisition did not come to the colony as liberators or conquerors. They came as exterminators. They took no prisoners. They killed and burned everything in sight. Man, woman, and children alike. Both human and Xenoxy. Regardless of whether or not the humans had been subjected to mind mites. It was then that our commanders realized with growing horror why we had lost contact with our human collaborators. The Inquisition had not simply rooted them out through advanced detection or countermeasures. The Inquisition had simply burned everything and everyone on the planets that we took. No one was responding because there was no one left to respond. What follows is an excerpt from the helmet recorder of a fallen Xenoxy warrior, played for the Xenoxy officers who were in charge of the occupation of New Tennessee. The human falls to the ground, onto the back next to the Xenoxy defender, rapidly trying to scurry away from an unseen person with a look of fear on his face. Footsteps are heard approaching the person from off-screen, until the lower half of the human clad in black appears, gripping the large revolver in his hand. Please, begs the human, I'm not a traitor, I I'm innocent. There is no such thing as innocence, heretic! The Inquisitor levels his pistol at the human's head and pulls the trigger. Only varying degrees of guilt. The human fell to the ground, dead. The feed cuts as something off-screen smashes the helmet. The human was later identified as one of the ones that we had yet to inject with mind mites. We had accounted for many things when fighting other species, but this level of violence and brutality hadn't been heard of since the Christian crisis. It was utterly unthinkable that there was a species out there willing to destroy entire colonies just to root out traitors in their own ranks. We'd thought the other human governments wouldn't stand for this, 
and our ambassadors of the Concord contacted the ambassadors of the Terran Republic. The Republic ambassador seemed sympathetic, but when asked what they would do in response to the Inquisition's actions, he shrugged. We can't do anything, the ambassador told us. The Inquisition never signed the Geneva Conventions. Granted, neither did you, but we can't do anything if a non-signatory attacks another. It's just gonna be business as usual. Looking back, I now believe the human ambassador was just putting up a front. I believe that in truth, the other factions inhabiting Terran space are looking the other way. Because the Inquisition are the ones dealing with someone who broke their convention. Still, we try to fight the Inquisition in space. Our planets were all veritable fortresses, and what could the Inquisition do to a planet that they couldn't invade? Then we learned the term exterminatus. Once Inquisition fleets had dealt with our defending ships, they simply began orbiting the planet and bombarding it from orbit until the surface was turned to glass. The Inquisition had ships fecking dedicated to this task. Who does that? Who does that? Who bombards a planet without giving the people on the planet a chance to evacuate or defend themselves? What's more, I'm told the Inquisition feels completely justified in this action. They say that they are trying to prevent the heretical knowledge and technology from falling into the hands of the wider galaxy. I can only assume they mean the mind mites. They won't allow anything or anyone, even tangentially related to the mind mites, to exist. The plasma bombardments are getting closer to my city now. The Inquisition has already shut down every transport and has tried to free the homeworld. This may be my last act of defiance. I do this to spite the Inquisition. Within this message is a data package with the designs for the Xenoxy Mind Mind Colony. Anyone with sufficient technology can replicate it. I can only hope. Transmission ends in explosion. Last transmission of Duke Norzo of House Jehu, formerly of the Kingdom of Xanox. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Lord Azrakal, and Arcadian. Tales from Outer Space 1643. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales, Tales from, from Outer, Outer Space. Space. Hope you enjoy. Standing, Unbalanced, and Human Specialty. Written, Akawayan. Wargame Tournament, Old Desia, Only Galactic Year 3698. Jack turned to Liliac, a large grin in his face. Told you we would meet in the finals, and he met us spot on. Liliac was smiling too. Her friend was definitely the only worthy opponent in the room. She started to set up her troops on the tactical map table, where the match would go. Best of three, as usual. She could not resist the urge to send a little taunt towards the overjoyed human. Your feet is much more impressive knowing you're playing Terrans, one of the, if not the weakest faction. Maybe you're not all about unjustified patriotic pride. Didn't even drop a match, replied Jack smugly. Going for a perfect run, you see. Well, not sure if your pathetic human troops could even scratch my tactical genius of a meta faction, anti-meta units. Trying to grab both of two worlds will cost you greatly, warned your friend. You're about the best matchup I could ever hope for. The back and forth of friendly bantering continued for a moment while the judges checked the miniatures once again and commentators went about the general details of the match. Soon, all the figurines were on the spot 
electronically linked to the table and screen. Little circles appeared around the base, representing life and morale. It was the essence of the game used technology to ease processes, but never replaced the joy of handling your own miniatures or rolling a bucket of dice when attacking the enemy. As the battle started, the strategies from both factions became apparent in a few minutes. Terrans were all about striking deep and fast from heavily defended spots, with few but individually high-valued troops. Vernal, Lilyak's faction, were the newcomers of the war game and a fictional race created to have a purely evil antagonist. Their balance was annoying, given that they were the first faction to feature a sub-usual conventional damages but heavy morale damage and resistance. They were from a large margin of the kings of the game in its current version, even being arguably the best way to counter themselves. Liliac used her troops to destroy enemy morale, hence debuffing all stats and units falling quickly despite lacking firepower on her side. She knew Jack was up to something when she saw that he was running only half of the allowed 5k worth of unit points in his army, not even the reverse troops. He played with such a disadvantage that there was no way that he would have won all of his previous matches from sheer luck. She had to admit that he was a tactical monster, cleaning her troops despite the obvious handicap of power starved off metafaction. But the morale-breaking point of this last few units were almost reached, and she was still 2k in the lead, pretty much five times what remained of the Terran troops. She turned to her friend and opponent and asked, Okay, time to stop toying with me. Hit me with your real plan. Jack shrugged, an apologetic smile on his face. I needed the setup. Start of my run, I used the Terran-only battle tactic. Last stand. Some comments went on about his soon-to-be loss, and the commentators checked the rules about this poorly known tactic. Jack casually explained it to his best friend. Well... Upon the right conditions, it means that my army gets a morale immunity and subtracts one to each attacking roll towards it, and can re-roll once each attack roll it makes. Liliac's eyes opened wide as a realization of the consequences washed over her. His few remaining troops were basically immune to everything that she could throw at them, except for the few heavy tanks that she sacrificed early in the battle. This round was a loss. Had she not chosen the Armored Walkers as a way to accurately kill high-value targets in mirror matchup, she would be defenseless against the trick for the next round. At least, she now was warned and could plan accordingly. Briliac was ecstatic. The third round had been such a fantastic game, maybe the best she'd ever played. All out close as hell, she had won despite a renewed use of the last stand. Still, she had to taunt her friend a bit, who had been one unlucky roll away from crushing her hopes. Say what you want, that tactic is unbalanced as feck. I'm kind to think the balance team gave it to you, Terrans, only because they sucked too much without some kind of backup plan. And they will suck, to be fair. That's just called, uh, realism, corrected Jack with an obvious racial pride and bitterness from the loss. And, uh, my suckers still came close to kicking your rear, with only half an army. You think I didn't get it? taunted Liliac throwing an arm around the shoulders of a friend, putting him close. You get an easy-to-trigger last stand, less cascading morale damage from my troops killing your army, and can be a little more comfy about the timer in the early turns because you have less units to handle. Jack let out a sigh and surrendered. Okay, you got me. Too bad luck was on your side. Come on, we get to go together to Galak Corps next year for the real tournament, 
Don't be such a bum about a little loss. You were against me. She let out a warm laugh, her face slowly turning into a predatory expression. She let out in a trailing and suggestive voice, Unless it was about our little bet. Some red appeared on Jack's face. She definitely understood him really well. Shooting range, Odalicia, late galactic year 3698. Fine, welcome everyone to your match-awaiting crash course on weapon-handling for civilians. I am Skycrasher, and I'll be your caretaker for the week. Don't expect to be able to take this training to the front lines, but it should be enough for you to not shoot your neighbor in the unlucky case the Ek-Thackers ever drop on Odlissia. And maybe even prevent them from, and I quote, freeing your body from the shackles of your biological mind. The instructor glanced at the group in front of him, as himself a large majority were humans, the only dumb enough to colonize a planet close to the uncharted border of the Confederation, and in the present days the battlefront between the Confederation and the Ek. As a totally unexpected coincidence, uncharted space and unknown aggressive civilizations tended to go together exceptionally well. Among the trainees, Jack and Liliac waited for him to continue his summary. They didn't like the idea of staying this close to a war, but the alternative wasn't great either. The genocidal corpse-stealer space robots known as the Ek weren't making distinction between military and civilian spaceships, and some rumors told them believing that biological minds couldn't handle space. So unlike the planetside battle, where they spent great care to not fatten inhabited districts for them to get their bounty of praise to rescue, they just blindly destroyed everything that they ever found floating in space, and they were really good at it. In a few months, the Confederation's Navy should be able to contain them, being themselves incredibly good at destroying stuff in floating space. But it was still a distant victory. Distant enough for the act to invade new planets and replace the inhabitants' brain by their own pseudo-sentient device. Not only did the defeat be a gruesome spectacle, it expanded the strength of the enemy. The instructor grabbed his rifle, went on with the formation. Okay, so first let's talk about rules, about gun safety. These are the four that you should engrave deep in your brain. The first one is... Barricades in the Western Bridge, Odlesia, Galacticia 3699. Liliac looked around. Everyone was in a bad shape, either soreness or something deeper in the soul. Even Jack looked shaken from the horrors of battle. Their militia platoon just came back from a support operation to the military troops nearer the Ek landing point. When the engagement took a bad turn, they were ordered to follow back the Skycrasher to the city and prepare to defend the position. What they saw made them hope the military would catch every single one of the Ek that came their way. What they faced was worse than what the few pictures and videos filtering from the previous battlefields showed. There was nothing that could prepare seeing legions upon legions of monsters whose appearance are as close to normal inhabitants of the Confederation, but with strange mechanical manners, random clothing, and strikingly similar scars around the head. Creatures from the uncanny valley, wearing the bodies of the lust. Creatures without motions, but holding good old machine guns. Little armor, only an unending tide of bodies killed and raised again and again as an unnatural alliance of flesh and metal. Skycrasher cringed, receiving a transmission from the front lines. Clapping his hands, he instantly got the attention of the 200 militiamen. 
Ladies, lads, they got our artillery on with an orbital strike. The infantry was still fight and is slowly repelling them, but they couldn't stop the strike force from piercing the line and heading towards us. Knowing the feckers, they'll try and create more of their aberrations from the civilians in the shelters. If they get to them, there's no stopping the tide. We have to cut them down here and now. There was despair, abundant in some of the glances exchanged behind the de facto leader. They were little more than glorified civilians themselves. Jack still stood, swallowing the paralyzing fear. How many of them? Little less than three thousand, let out Skyscraper, his shoulders drooping a millimeter. Wounded, slower, but still a little more than us. The comments were audibly defeatist now. Even Liliac felt that there was nowhere close to up to the task. She grumbled, last stand is supposed to be a bit more glorious. Vague approval came from around her. However, her words ignited a spark in the heart of Jack. Still standing amongst the lying and emotionally defeated, he started. It is not a last stand. It's the lost shield. We're the lost shield for them. His hands pointed towards the city, the shelters. We're the lost shield of the weak, of our children, of our parents. Silence came back for a couple seconds. Then a second voice rose from another barricade. A second human stood up. We are the last shield of my daughter, my son, and my soon-to-be grandson. A third voice came up, a third human rising from the silence of the doubt. We are the last shield of my grandma, and the pretty clerk, and the noisy neighbor. One after another, voices came to life, the spark reaching both humans and aliens, growing in their hearts, until everyone was standing, proud, ready, almost eager to defend what they loved most. Skycrasher let out a thunderous voice, roaring his defiance. We are not a sacrifice, as we will survive this day. We are not to buy time, as we are the reinforcements. We are not to cower in fear, as we are the light in the darkness. He inhaled profoundly and let out a battle cry. We hold hope, and we bring death. A single roar came back from the two hundred blazing voices. We hold hope, and we bring death. When the Ek came into view, what was supposed to be an improvised unit turned to a deadly bunch. They shredded the first wave in a matter of seconds, almost every shot finding its mark in an unsuspecting enemy troop. The defenders were fighting backwards, going from barricade to barricade every time the dead bots came too close and started to get accurate targets on their hiding spots. Every time they hopped back, Skycrasher would call again and everyone would answer, We hold hope and we bring death. Biliak was proud as she counted the seventh kill. The Ek were paying an unhealthy blood price for their advance. However, the militiamen weren't getting out unscathed. She didn't want to know how many of them got gutted by an unlucky volley. She fell back, sprinting ahead of Jack and Skyscraper, taking cover behind the next obstacle. The soldier was still defiantly claiming, despite the enemy, despite the odds, despite the world itself. We hold! Oh. The battle cry stopped as his head exploded in gore. The militia fell silent, including Liliac, and they stopped firing. Again... The insidious doubt was there. Would she come back alive? Was it really the last stand? 
Then a new voice came, younger, well-known. She turned towards Jack, seeing him shoot another Eck, reaching over the barricade. Again, alone, he claimed, We hold hope, and we bring death. Exultation came back. Whatever the odds, they would live through the day. She just did a rifle, shot her eighth kill. All around them, answers came flowing in. We hold hope, and we bring death. War Games Tournament, Galactic Core, Galactic Gear 3700. I am dumbfounded the meta hasn't changed in two years. Even worse, players found a way to even be more obnoxious with the Verniel despite the patches, complained Liliac. Still, uh, we're already top eight, and I doubt that we'll stop there, soothed her Jack, sliding his hands into hers. Another competitor, visibly angry, moved towards the couple, leaving the side of the judge. Jack chuckled, then explained to Liliac, my former opponent, who calls himself Vernal God, Metaplayer, sent back home crying. Said Vernal God came to stop next to them, glaring at both. He snapped, Abuser, you only won because your fucking last stand tactic is unbalanced as fuck. I just filed a complaint to the judge so that it can be reworked to be a bit more realistic. Jack, Liliac, exchanged a glance, and he stepped back a bit. She asked, trying to stay neutral in front of the sore loser. I can only agree with your assessment. It is nowhere near what I saw. Vernal God seemed a bit surprised, but she would agree, but started to complain happily. Yes, uh, you see, there is no way in hells that these puny 100 super soldiers could take down my 5,000 strong swarm force in a real battle. Something clicked in his mouth. Wait, you said what you saw? Yes. I lived through the human, not called last stand, but still one with Jack, she pointed at him. Oh, I didn't expect him to date military personnel, commented Vernal God, or be one himself ex-militia, corrected Liliac. Jack, how would you rate the ex-dead bot? Pretty much the same as the Vernal Swarm Spawn, near one point units, shrugged Jack. And both militiamen and super soldiers? Super soldiers are rated at 40. With the army I'm playing, I'd say that that's all right. For a militiaman, he stopped for an instant, a finger on his chin, making a show of guessing. Now I'll be utterly generous and say five. So to sum it up, Liliac turned back to Vernal God. You just lost simulated battle with something like 4k against 5k points. The battle we lived through. She grabbed Jack's arm, pressing herself against him, was closer to 1k to 3k if generous, probably 500 to 3k. Bullshit! It's the only word uttered by Vernal God. Well... Look up the tale of Skycrasher when you have time, suggested Jack. To come back to the matter at hand, I agree that the last stand tactic is utterly undervalued in the game, grinned Lydiac. I already sent a demand for it to be reworked and to be reworked to its real value. Nice to see that I have backup. Almost fuming, Vernal God started to back away. He spat back. Don't dare hope things will go your way. The demonic smile appeared on both the faces of the couple. Without further consultation, they simply dropped a trilling tone. We hold hope. And we bring death. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Lord Azrakal, and Arcadian. Tales from Outer Space 1644. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales, Tales from, from Outer, Outer Space. space. Hope you enjoy. Story number one. The ultimate weapon. Written by Random3x. 
Ah, General Domain. Been a while. Wind Sailor beamed as he gestured for the human to approach. Domain's whole body slumped as he trudged over towards the group. What's the question today? he asked with a deep sigh. Pardon? Wind Sailor asked. You guys only ever call me over to get that human perspective. Domain answered, making quotation marks with his fingers. So, I felt like let's skip the preamble. What human thing do you want me to do? Human domain. I am hurt that you would think such a thing. Manus held a claw to his carapace in mock heartbeat. Please, you know as well as I do, you only include me to get my perspective. Domain grumbled. Is that such a bad thing? If anything, it means we value your input, Growl said, fixing Domain with a smile as he slid a cake towards him. I suppose. Sorry it's been a bit of a mood today, uh. So what's the subject today? Domain asked, relaxing his body language and making it clear that he was starting to relax. Think nothing of it, uh. We are discussing something very apt for prisoners in war, criminal prison. When Sailor began... Yes, we are discussing the ultimate weapon, Growl roared as he slid the second cake towards Domain. Like, uh, what it is? Domain asked. Yes, serve assault. We are discussing what would be needed to make the theoretical ultimate weapon, Malice explained. First, I stated that it should simply nullify all opposition, while at the same time not ever harming your allies. When Sailor began, to which the other two nodded. And, um, I said that we should be able to use it against anyone and regardless of who or what they are, Growl added. Domain nodded at these first two points. Makes sense, sir. Uh, break your opponent, ensure your ally's safety, and never have to worry about it if it will work, Domain said, continuing to nod. Next, I said that it should be self-sustaining. So, when we use it, it can't be stopped by anyone but the one who started it, Malice said clicking his mandibles. They're pleased with their addition. If I may, I'll add that it should be of a sort that the enemy can never use the side effects themselves, not even to inconvenience the one who used it, the main added, to which the trio nodded emphatically. A most uh, astute idea. It would be worrisome if the enemy could use this theoretical ultimate weapon against us, when Sailor said, nodding. Weapons also often have a very high cost-to-effectiveness ratio. It should be a very low cost, preferably close to nothing if possible, Growl said. At that, uh, why not make an add to your resources? With each use, it should grow in power as you do, Manus suggested, and all four present nodded. Finally, not just the side effects, but it should never be possible for the opposition to use it against us, Domain said. If I may add something as well, why not make it that it doesn't have to kill your opponents if it is unnecessary, Windsailor added. So, uh, what could this theoretical ultimate weapon be? A self-replicating nanite swarm, Windsailor suggested. They have an initial low cost, are usable against anyone regardless, and can add to your resources and could be programmed to avoid people mocked as allies. But there is not a danger of control being stolen, Grawl asked. Well, uh, it's not impossible, one sailor admitted. How about a genetically engineered hive mind's form? Malice suggested. It'll not harm allies, will only add to our power, cannot ever be turned, and would be possible to use against near all enemies. 
but that would have a high initial cost and would be self-sustaining, and it would undoubtedly kill a lot of the enemy, which we stated would not be a necessary feature. Well, with your idea, it seems to be a given, Growl refuted. If you are so sure, then why don't you suggest something then? Malice shot back. Hmm, how about a sun exploder? Growl suggested. It would be usable against all, and the enemy can't use the side effects, and it could never be resisted. Growl, buddy. You'd be destroying masses of resources, not to mention the cost of such a device to start with. Domain said, shaking his head. Ah, I suppose so. Growl lowered his head. I got a suggestion. Domain began before training off. Please do proceed, when Sailor said, gesturing with his hands. It may seem very anime, but uh, friendship, Domain said, putting aside who anime is. Why friendship? Growl asked. Friendship will meet all the criteria we have set. One, if you made friends with the opposition, it would completely nullify them. It would also never harm allies. Two, friendship can be used against anyone with few limitations. Friendship ideally is self-sustaining and has almost zero resource cost as well. The opposition could never use friendship against us, so they wouldn't be able to use the effects or the side effects against us as they would break what they gain. Not to mention, we would receive a net gain from anyone we befriended. Domain finished his explanation. Domain, Mansela looked at his human friend with a disconcerted look. I think I understand how your race expands so much now. Not through force of arms, Growl flexed his bicep, but through force of arms. Growl pulled Domain into a hug. A fascinating idea if it could be used. Malice said as he clicked his mandibles in joy. For the power of friendship, when Sailor held up his cup, to which the others held their own, joining the toast. So about this anime fellow, please tell me more, Growl boomed, sliding a third cake towards Domain. End of story. Story number two. Buzzing the Tower, written by Traumatized Waffle. Well, what is it? One of the techs finally called out. I haven't a clue, but whatever it is, it's moving fast and still accelerating. Called back another tech. We'd all been staring at the radar screen for the past ten minutes or so. A weird blip had popped up on the edge of sensor range and had been accelerating ever since. Our scanners couldn't seem to get a fix on it, for whatever reason, so we had no real idea what it was. Maybe it's one of those new Federation stealth ships? Someone surmised. That can't be. We would have been notified of a testing occurring nearby, plus uh, nobody comes this close to the galaxy's edge, replied another voice from the crowd. There was suddenly a loud gasp amongst our small crowd as the object changed its heading, putting on a direct course for our small listening post. There was silence for a moment, and then panic. Shouts of, it's heading right for us! And other panic-laden shouts began to echo throughout the small station. We all began to scramble throughout the station, preparing for the object's imminent arrival. Point defense systems online, chirped a computerized voice, accompanied by a loud whirring sound that had filled the station as the large point defense batteries came online. We all clambered back to the central control bridge and to our stations. Proximity alert, object on approach, chirped the computer. We could see the object now through the vid screen, and none of us could doubt that it was a ship. A very large ship at that, accelerating still. The ship crossed over firing range and the point defense batteries began to open fire, spewing bright red laser bursts at the ship. 
We all watched as the beams launched towards the ship, and just as it seemed it would connect, they bounced off at an unseen barrier, then lit up light blue for the instant the beams connected and turned translucent again. The ship was getting even closer, and we could see it in much greater detail. It was impossibly large, probably bigger than the largest Federation war cruiser ever built. On either side, three large domes ran the length of the ship. It gained closer, and suddenly our communication array burst to life. A large, bipedal creature appeared on the vidscreen sitting on what appeared to be controls for a large vessel. It began to speak, and our translator systems furiously translated its language. Yee-haw! Howdy, aliens! I'm gonna show you all something we've called buzzing the tower back in Texas! exclaimed the creature. We all began to scream as the ship barreled towards us, seemingly to crash right into us. Then, at the last second, the alien creature jerked back on the controls, and the large ship arched upwards, at the bottom part of its hull slightly scraping along the outer hull of the station. We stared at the back of the ship as it lit off into the distance. On the back, written in strange letters that our translator matrix sampled, were the words, Texas II, Migrator Vessel. We all stood there, terrified and baffled. Our communication systems registered another loud, Yee-haw! Whatever that meant. Then our sensors began furiously throwing out data as the ship began throwing off a bunch of strange exotic particles. Then, it was simply gone. We were all silent, attempting to comprehend what had just happened. What the feck were those guys? Someone exclaimed. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Lord Azrakal, and Arcadian. Tales from Outer Space 1645. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales, Tales from, from Outer, Outer Space. Space. I hope you enjoy. Lecture for medical students on New Galactic Alliance species, humans. Written by Cobalt Sky. Hello, students. I am glad that you are all here, and congratulations on almost completing your final year at the Greater Galactic Medical Institute. Zen took a minute to finish taking the gathered crowd of eager students from the 15 or so species that made up the known galactic community. You might not know me, so to properly introduce myself, I am Dr. Zend. I was part of the first contact team that, for the past four years, has been working with the humans on bringing them to our united group. At this, many of the students started murmuring, Zen had expected this. Humans were still new to much of the galaxy and were quite the topic of debate and wonder. Due to the fact that they came from Sol 3, a Class 12B death world, no doubt the stories that they told and that were told to them supported this ridiculous notion. Soon the room quieted down and a couple students raised their hand as expected of young and inquisitive minds. Please save your questions for later, as my topic for today will hopefully answer some, and most likely give you tenfold more than you had, as learning about humans usually tends to do. At that, many of the students did their equivalent of a nervous laugh, and those with their hands up put them down. 
A couple of seconds later, the room was quiet. To start off, it is important that you understand something fundamental about humans that applies in every aspect of their lives. This is that there is no steadfast rule that can lock humans down. There are trends and things that are more common, but there is always something that'll bend or break that trend. The mutters from the room confirmed that many of the students had gathered this from the stories that had filtered to the community about the absolute chaos that humans could bring. That is not what I am here to talk about today. I have been brought here to give advice to all of you and a warning to some. You see, after the usual diplomatic dance, when our people started sharing information with the humans, my medical team noted something unique about their body that sets them apart from all other known sentient peoples. Zen took a moment to look over the group gathered before him, now as quiet as a statue. He knew that they were wondering what further oddity the humans that he was about to explain to them. There is no definitive term for this yet, so please bear with me. You there. He pointed to a particular bright-looking student in the second row back. Can you explain how our nervous system works in layman's terms? Looking confused, the student responded after a second. Our main brain communicates by nerves with the rest of our body and tells each part how to function to keep us alive and perform tasks that we need to complete. Why do you ask, do humans not do this? Zen nodded to the student and signaled for them to sit down. In a way, humans still have a system that sends signals to the body to perform basic functions, but he stopped to think of the best way to start explaining the reason for this lecture. You, he pointed to another student, explain to me in detail what your body does to pick up a tablet on your desk. The student stood up and picked up their tablet with a thought for a second. Well, uh... First, I have my left nevlex muscle extend as the right nevlex muscle contracts, thus uh, lowering my arm. I tighten my octavenal joint and turn my grasper to position to grab the tablet, then tighten my vonex ligament to grip the tablet, and repeated all the steps, one through three, in the opposite order, to pick it up. The student seemed a bit confused as this was something almost everyone could explain, even if they did not know the exact names of the muscles used to perform the task. Exactly. You see, the thing is, if I asked a human to do the same task and describe how they did it, they could not unless they understood how their muscle structure worked and what muscles needed to be moved prior to me asking. This is true for much of the human body. Many of the actions that they take are like their sentient part of the brain hitting a switch and the body performs an action. Whereas our brains have to manipulate each muscle individually. Many of the students were looking super confused about this until one lifted their wing when Zen nodded and let her speak. She asked, So, uh, if I asked a human to uh, lift an appendage above their head, they would just think arm up and it would go up? Zen smiled. These students were smart. That is a massive oversimplification, but yes. The only bigger correction is that apparently they do not even have to think arm move up. A part of the brain handles that for them. 
then stopped for a second, seeing the confusion growing on all of the students' faces. I know that this is hard to understand, and trust me, I felt the same way at first. The reason that I am struggling to explain it is that the system is so autonomous that the humans themselves had a hard time explaining it to me. That shows just how much of a closed system their motor control is. The first student raised their appendage. Yes. Zen nodded to them. So, uh, what you are saying is that humans operate more like an autoforge where you request an item and it spits one out, whereas we are more like building that object by hand. Zen stopped for a brief second. These students were absolutely top of their classes. Yes, very well put. Now that the basic explanation is out of the way, let me explain how this will affect you working on and with humans. You see, in addition to the black box nervous system, some of their body functions are completely out of their control. The biggest example of this is their heart. It is what they consider a smooth muscle. That is a term for an organ or structure that can and does work with little to no input from the main nervous system. More mutters from the class, and he could hear a couple students quietly discussing how this could be a benefit. So, the human heart, it does react to outside stimuli. For example, if the human starts running, for example, the heart will start beating faster to increase the blood flow to the body. But unlike us, the humans cannot do this intentionally. They can do something to trigger the response, but not control their heart directly. Now, many of you wonder the reason for this. The answer to the question gets more into the overall advantage of the nervous system. Can anyone guess what it would be? Looking around the room, Zen picked up on one of the many appendages that shot into the air. The student eagerly responded. It must provide them with the ability to multitask much more efficiently as the parts of their brains that we would use for controlling our bodies can instead be used to think of other things. Zen thought that it was a good theory. But the student was thinking too far forward in their history. Good guess, but humans are actually comparatively bad multitaskers versus the rest of the members of the coalition. Anyone else have an idea on the reason for this? And before I pick someone else, consider that the system is something that most every species on Sol 3 has. After a couple seconds of quiet murmuring, a shy-looking student who was being encouraged by the others next to them raised an appendage. Go on, Zen said, looking at them. Well, well uh, in, in light of what you said, it, it must provide some, some sort of survival benefit, but, but I, I cannot seem to think of what that would be, as it, it is not more advantageous to have complete control of your body, and thus be able to more precisely react and to, to avoid any dangerous situations. Now they were catching on. You are correct. This does have to do with survival on their world. You see, in most cases, it would be more advantageous to have more accurate control of one's body. But terror, as they call it, is unique in that there are so many situations and problems that can arise that most of the time if a being is to forage, hunt, explore, or reproduce, they will have to expose themselves to a multitude of risks and thus learning the best way to counter an uncountable dangers that could happen at any given second is not viable. Another student spoke up. So, uh, 
Is it like working at a general clinic versus a specialized care facility? The toolkit for the facility is too specialized to handle a wide range of cases that could come at the clinic. Odd analogy, but yes, that is exactly it. There are other aspects of the system, and like most things with humans, they are both a blessing and a curse. Can anyone tell me how our systems deal with pain and how it affects us? A student in the back stood up to be able to speak to the full room. Well, uh, we can feel pain like most other species, and if the pain gets too much, we can, uh, in simple terms, deactivate the nerve cluster, thus not feeling the pain. But this comes with the disadvantage of losing function of whatever the nerve cluster controlled. As well, if we are in too much pain, it can block or confuse signals our brain is trying to send to a part of our anatomy, making it hard or impossible to use or accurately control. Zen was so happy. It seemed every year the graduates got brighter and brighter. Exactly. A wonderful summarization. As you most likely expect, by now the human system works different, thanks in part to the autonomy of their nerves. They can still use and control parts of their body that is in pain way past of what we could consider inoperable. They call this ability pain tolerances. A good example of this is that they are still able to move and utilize a limb that has one or several fractures in the endoskeleton. At this, many of the students flashed looks of shock and winced as they could only begin to think of the amount of pain that would cause, and that the fact that they could still use that appendage. Just then, a hand slowly raised, almost like they were afraid to ask the question. If, um, if they could use a limb that has fractures, would they not have a large risk of dealing further damage to the limb, and making the situation worse? Zen nodded. Yes, and most of the time that is what happens. Now before you ask the reason why, let me explain another thing that ties well into this question. You see, due to hidden operation of the nervous system, humans have comparatively little information about what's going on in their own bodies. For example, if they get hit with something and it causes a small fracture in a part of their endoskeleton, they will feel pain in the area of the break, but will not know for sure that there is a fracture or if the bone is just bruised. The same goes for many other injuries and ailments. Another big one is headaches. If they are dehydrated, their optic nerves are overstressed or a plethora of things, they will feel pain in their brain, but not be able to reliably know the source. Most frighteningly of all is cancer, as most of the time they can go for years with dangerous growth and not realize it is there. Whereas we would notice the problem in a matter of weeks. Zen took a second to let this sink in before asking his next question. So... Why would humans, who, to remind you, have a home planet with some of the most competitive evolution, end up with a nervous system that could not detect problems within their body, and can only partially tell what known problems are? A couple of students seemed to think they had the answer, but quickly brought their hand down as Zen assumed they found a fault in their logic. After a couple minutes, a hushed discussion, but no one coming forward, Zen continued. The simple answer is expectancy. Because on Terra, the environment is so hostile to early humans that the ability to keep functioning, even if they were in pain, as well as being able to react 
Faster, by simplifying what active part of their brain needed to do, allowed them to last longer than our more detailed system. At this point, many students looked concerned, and one lifted an appendage, and when pointed at, spoke. So, uh, what you are saying is that the reason for the human's unique nervous system is that the earliest version of themselves were more likely to be killed by some physical and or environmental factor than the cancer. Zen was pleased at how well this group was handling the alien concept. Exactly! Even in their modern ages, their system may not be universally helpful as ours, except in some specific circumstances. A good example of this is the human reflexes. Some of you may have heard of humans moving out of the way of things that many of us would not have had the time to recognize as a potential threat and then later saying that they did not ever see the thing that they avoided. This is a prime example of human body just acting and triggering the movements without any thought. Something that is only possible because they do not have the ability to individually control the muscles, and instead their motor control is mostly automated. Just then, a notification popped up in Zen's tablet an alarm to warn them that the time allotted for this talk was coming to an end. Okay, two more things that are important for you to know, starting out with this. Tapping an icon on the tablet, the screen behind him flickered to life. What I'm about to show you is a little bit graphic, but it is an excellent example of both the human body compartmentalized nervous structure, as well as another benefit of their bodies. Tapping play showed the video of a human heart outside of one of their bodies being supplied fresh blood from a tube and pumping away happily, as if there was not sitting in a sterile white box. This is a human heart that is being brought to hospital for transplant to one of their elders who was having a heart problems, and yes, this is real and something that is quite common. The shocking part is the fact that all the heart needs to work is fresh blood. Given it cannot last forever in this state. As well as the truth that humans can use, and I don't like using this term, but it fits best here. Parts from others in order to keep functioning. Zen let the video loop over once more before turning it off and nodding to a student who wanted to ask a question. Have you witnessed this procedure yourself? Zen chuckled in response. No, I have not, but I have met a human who had this procedure done. The students nodded, seeming satisfied with the answer. Zen waited a second for the room to quiet again before starting on the most important part of the lecture. The last part only applies to those of you who have been gifted with the ability to interface with other beings' nervous systems, thus be able to feel what they do. You need to, under no circumstances, adapt this with a human. We know that this ability lets doctors be able to truly understand what the patient needs. When it comes to humans, forget your ability. Due to the differences in nervous systems, doing so would be equivalent to plugging a delicate medical instrument into a ship's warp core directly. The results may be similar. Thus, it is important to learn how to diagnose humans without using this technique. Luckily for us over their history, they have developed many methods of determining the sources of their ailments. As well, most anywhere you would be asked to work on a human, there will most likely be a human doctor to assist you. That is all the time I have for today. So you may leave if you would like, or stay if you have questions. 
Zen was happy to see that after a couple of seconds of silence, not one of the students budged from where they were sitting. This Q&A was most likely going to last longer than the lecture, and Zen could not be happier. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barkey, it's difficult to pronounce, Lord Azrakul, and Arcadian. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barkey, it's difficult to pronounce, Lord Azrakul, and Arcadian.